Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi everyone, CJ here. Welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 73 of the DHP, and this is going to be our second listener emails episode. This has really been a hell of a week for me. Um, I've been going back to work. It's been the week this week right prior to the start of the fall semester, the start of the new academic year. And so things have been absolutely crazy for me because of that. That happens every year anyway. And of course, one thing that happens every year that's quite a lot of fun, sarcastically meant, of course, is that they love to have tons of meetings for us to go to during the same week right now when we're supposed to be getting everything ready to go for next Monday for the start of the new academic year. And the best way to help us with that apparently is to have at least 60% of our work week eaten up with attending meetings, very few of which are very helpful at all. So I've been dealing with all that standard annoyance that usually takes place right before the start of fall semester. And then on top of that, one of my lovely children decided that it would be a great time to bring home a nasty cold from who knows where and donate it to the entire household. So there you go. Literally a day or two before this week started for me to get ready my classes, I am given a wonderful gift of a rather nasty cold. Bye-bye, child. Mind you, in August, right? Who the hell gets a cold in August? That that just seems ridiculous. That's supposed to happen. It's called a cold. It's supposed to happen when it's actually cold. That's when you get sick. That's when you expect it. So, yeah, quite annoying. Right before I have to officially go back to work, Bam, I get the sickest I've been in probably six months. The, the sickest I've been in several months. In fact, I haven't been sick since that time way back. I think it was in the spring where I actually couldn't do the show for a couple weeks because of it. So anyway, quite annoying. But here we are. And um, this is why I might sound a little hoarse. But you're just going to have to deal with it because I'm dealing with it myself. And besides that, being a little hoarse might make me sound kind of cool and sexy and awesome. At least I hope. Or maybe I just sound sick. Before we get into the meat of the episode, I want to give my Patreon shoutouts and had a bunch of new Patreon sponsors sign up since the last episode I made. So shoutouts and thank yous to Patrick, to Leo, to David, to PJ, 
to Ken and to Derek. Thank you all very much. I really appreciate it. And look for bonus episodes of the show to be coming on there soon. I actually have one I recorded but have not quite completed processing and uploading and all that, but should be out not long after or whenever this episode sees the light of day. And that, of course, will only be available to my Patreon patrons who are supporting the show at at least a dollar an episode. So if you sign up as a supporter of the Dangerous History Podcast on Patreon, and that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j, Go there, sign up as a Patreon supporter of this show for at least a dollar per episode. That only works out to between three and five bucks a month, by the way. I usually do three, four or five episodes per month. Do that and you will have access to some bonus episodes coming out on roughly a monthly basis. Now, you can sign up as a supporter on Patreon for less than $1 per episode, and if you do that, I will give you a shout-out on the air and say thank you, but you won't have access to bonus content unless you pledge at least a buck per show, and of course, feel free to pledge more than a buck per show if you're so inclined. And again, a buck per show is only between 3 and $5 a month, and so assuming you're not totally strapped, if you think this show provides between 3 and $5 a month worth of uh, benefit to you, please consider doing so. And of course, again, as a thank you, you will get some extra bonus episodes via Patreon. Also, I just want to mention, I normally send out thank yous via email to anyone who donates to me via PayPal, but I think I actually forgot to do so with the recent PayPal donation um, because of all the hubbub and being sick and going back to work and all that this week. So going to make up for it here. Thank you to Chris for a recent PayPal donation. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Now on to the heart of the show. Got a bunch of very uh, diverse emails this time. A lot of different topics. The first one comes from Caitlin. Caitlin writes in and says, I'm a senior in high school and really love your show. I hated history all throughout school, except for my AP history teacher that I had last year, who was pretty good, though I still like your show better. Thank you very much. Anyway, I mostly don't like school that much, even though I usually get pretty good grades, including in my AP and dual enrollment courses. By the way, as an aside, those of you not familiar with that lingo, AP and dual enrollment are both ways that high school students can, in most American uh, public schools anyway, and in a lot of private schools too, can get college credit for some courses while they're still a high school student. They're both really great things. Uh, you can do both. I did both when I was a high school student. AP is advanced placement. It's when you take a college-level course taught by one of your high school teachers and um, I believe you usually have to also pass a particular exam for that course at the end, a standardized test related to it. And then there's dual enrollment where you actually are officially enrolled in a college. Usually it's a nearby community college. Most of the time you leave your high school campus to go and take your, your classes at the college. Occasionally they will have some college classes run on high school campuses as well. But uh, anyway, that, that's what she's talking about there. That was something I did a bit when I was a high school student. Anyway, continuing with Caitlin's email. I'm not sure if I want to go to college or not. My parents want me to go, as do teachers and guidance counselors that I've talked to. I feel like everyone's still in the mindset of, go to college no matter what. And I'm not sure if it's right for me, at least right now. And I don't know what I would major in or what I want to do with my life and career. I also don't know about getting into debt. 
I've already qualified for some scholarships, but I don't think that, plus what my parents can spare, would be nearly enough to cover four years at a decent school. As someone who works at a college, what do you think about this? I feel like everyone's pressuring me to go, but I'm not sure if it's right for me, at least not right now. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for your time, Caitlin. All right, Caitlin, thank you for your email. Here are my thoughts on this topic. Because, yes, I do have experience on both sides as a student not too long ago, although things have gotten in many ways even worse since I was a student, and then also a bunch of years now uh, working in the college system. I would say this to Caitlin and anyone else who is in a similar situation. I would say go to college if you have a pretty solid idea of what you want to do and a degree is either essential or at least extremely helpful like to the point of being almost essential to you doing whatever it is, or at least a degree, a degree for whatever it is you want to do will be so much of a plus to doing it that it's worth the time and money. And I would also say go to college if and only if you can get the degree you desire with little or no debt. And of course, the amount of debt that's tolerable is relative to the job prospects and the salary prospects for a particular uh, career. So, I know some types of uh, engineering, for example, have very high entry-level salaries in those careers. Well, obviously, you could tolerate accumulating more debt for one of those sorts of jobs than you could accumulating a similar amount of debt to get a degree in art history. So I'm actually a big supporter of the ideals of the old-school liberal arts education, but I also am someone who acknowledges and will not lie to young people and say that such an education will guarantee you some sort of great career. It will not. It will not. The days when it was pretty much a given that with just some sort of generic liberal arts degree, you could get a high paying career. Those days are long gone. That's just the reality. It's not to say that people with, with some sort of liberal arts degree can't be successful. Of course they can, but Typically, their success is uh, only tangentially related to their liberal arts degree, if it's related at all. So those are my thoughts on when to go to college. If you already have a pretty solid idea of what you want to do and, and a degree is either flat out essential or at least extremely important and helpful, almost essential to it, and uh, if you can acquire that degree with little or no debt, now I would add, do not go to college if... You want a career of a type that you can learn by doing, where a degree really isn't essential. So think, you know, lots of the trades, right? And yeah, there are there are schools for some of those trades and whatever, but that's a little different than going to college. And by the way, I am I am not at all denigrating trade schools or learning a trade or becoming an apprentice. I think we need more people who go that route. There's nothing wrong with that, and there's plenty of opportunities in many of those fields to make far more money than somebody like me with multiple college degrees. I would also say do not go to college if you're not yet sure what you want to do. You don't want to be running up $15,000 or more per semester of debt while you're figuring out what it is you even want to do there. That makes no rational or economic sense. And I would say do not go to college if you have to cover most or all of your costs with loans. The cost of college has so astronomically outpaced the general rise in prices due to inflation that it's very often not the sensible investment that it used to be to go into debt to acquire a college degree. That's just the math. 
Now, Caitlin, you already have some college credit from AP and dual enrollment classes in high school, and that's great because you got those at basically no financial cost to you. And I would imagine, as is typical, those are probably gen ed kind of basic courses that pretty much all college freshmen and even sophomores might have to take. So basic things like intro history courses, basic science and math courses, basic English courses, etc. I would imagine that's probably what most if not all of the courses you've taken are, just because that's usually what you have uh, the options to take in AP and dual enrollment. So you didn't mention how many credits you accumulated or the exact courses, but depending on exactly how many credits you've accumulated there, you've probably knocked out anywhere from a semester to a full year's worth of college courses and done so with no debt. So that's great. That's, that's gaming the system. You know, we can, we can argue about the, the merits of having taxpayer funding for things like high school kids getting dual enrollment credits and so on, but the fact of the matter is that's the system that exists now. So if you're somebody who's trying to get some sort of a degree without completely crippling yourself financially with the albatross of massive student loans, you know, play the system that's there. So anyway, you're already ahead of the curve if you decide to go because of the credits you've accumulated at no out-of-pocket cost to you. If you do decide to go and you don't have either a full scholarship or something close to it, I would highly recommend knocking out as many courses towards your degree as is possible at something like a community college or similar institution. Because the fact of the matter is, you can knock out a significant percentage of the of the uh, credits you need there, and it's the same credits, but you're getting it at a far lower price. It's just like when an item is made in the same factory and it's the same item, but when it has a um, one sticker on it, it, it's sold at a much higher price. The fact of the matter is that when it comes to basic intro gen ed type courses, especially less expensive colleges are just as good as more expensive colleges, because typically what matters most is where you end up getting the final degree from. So if you knock out a bunch of your credits at something like a community college, you can always transfer to a more name brand, fancier school of some type for at least a year or two. Now, you may not be able to transfer from community college to Ivy League school, but for most people, I would not advise going to an Ivy League school in the first place for a variety of reasons. Unless you know exactly what you want to do, it's a good school for it, and you have basically a, a full ride from somewhere or somebody. But in most cases, if you if you have good uh, test scores, good high school grades, good community college grades, it's not very, very difficult to transfer to a decent university or something like that. And when you transfer to the more name brand school, that's where you're going to take the, the upper level courses in your major anyway. And that way, you'll still end up getting your BA degree from a more prestigious school. But you've saved a ton of money by knocking out the first batch of credits of, you know, the first, at least the first half of your degree, you've knocked out at a place where you're getting the same credits for a lot less money. You still end up with a diploma from university of so-and-so that's, that's more respectable. By the way, for a variety of reasons, I would caution anyone away from the sort of fly-by-night, uh, online-only, for-profit diploma mill places. Um, won't get into that here other than, you know, don't take my word for it. Do your own research on that. Check check into those things. But, you know, University of Phoenix-type places, University of Phoenix Online and all that sort of stuff, 
I would be very skeptical of those. They they are great at getting people in debt for degrees that are even less helpful than other degrees. And again, I would say to anybody, don't go to an Ivy League type school unless you've got a free ride to it, either through scholarships or through parents' money if you're a plutocrat. But for most people, the amount of debt you'll accumulate at an Ivy League school is so astronomical that even as helpful as the degree from there might be to your job prospects, it's unlikely to, um, you know, to outweigh it. Now, I want to say this to any parents who are listening, especially if you have children approaching high school graduation. Please don't pressure your kids into going to college if they're reluctant. A, it might not be right for them at all. Not everybody should go to college. Not everybody's college material. And by the way, there's nothing at all wrong with that. It doesn't reflect badly on them or on you. When I say not everyone's college material, I don't mean that as an insult to anybody. There are lots of people who either don't go to college or drop out of it or flunk out of it who become extremely successful in life in various ways. We all probably know plenty of them personally. Some of you listening might be those people. There, there are famous examples. There are not so famous examples, but there are plenty of people who don't have college degrees who end up being extremely successful. And there are plenty of people with college degrees who are losers. And to parents, B, college might not be right for your kids right now. It might be something that will work for them later. But right now, in other words, when they're you know wrapping up high school, they might not be ready for it yet, but they might later. And I'll just say as an aside that many of my best students in the years that I've taught, and I, I teach at a college that's basically similar to community college, but it's not, not called that. But some of the best students I've ever had have been older students coming back to school because they appreciate it more. They have a lot more maturity. They oftentimes have a lot more discipline from living out in the real world and working real jobs for many years. Older students often really try to get, and as a result, do get the their money's worth from their education, not just in terms of the credits they accumulate, but in terms of actually learning stuff, because they tend to take it, again, on average, do I have younger students that are 18 years old who are great and whatever? Sure. I'm talking about averages here. On average, students who are a little or a lot older than most college students, they often take it more seriously and are less often to be there just to kill time, party, and socialize while trying to do as little work as possible in order to get the degree. Again, unlike many, though of course not all, but unlike many of those 18 to 20-year-olds who are more in the typical age. Now keep in mind, a lot of parents and a lot of school officials are baby boomers or, or pretty close to that generation. You know, my own parents are baby boomers. And these are people of a generation who were often able to go through college and successfully complete a degree with little or no debt. I mean, you think you hear about like people who graduated with a four year degree from a really nice university and had like $400 of debt back then or no debt at all. And they could often do this just with a little bit of work while in college, working part-time during the academic year and maybe upping it to full-time during the summer. And that's it. And graduate with little or no debt. Well, that's what it was like 40, 50 years ago. But the reality is, as everybody knows, but very few people actually change the advice they give to young people based on this knowledge, everybody knows in constant inflation-adjusted dollars, higher education has gone up in cost astronomically since the boomers went to school. Plus, 
Degree inflation has been dramatic since then. Degree inflation, if you're not familiar with that term, is basically the idea that the more people who have out in the job market, out in the world, walking around, have college degrees, the less valuable a degree really is compared with what it was like when they were much more scarce. It's just like when you print up a bunch more dollars, it just makes the value of each dollar that already exists go down. Well, if almost everybody walking around has college degrees, then a college degree doesn't count for much anymore. So degree inflation has been dramatic since the baby boomers heyday. And just like with monetary inflation, where those who get the new money first are able to spend it before prices have been pushed up throughout the economy by the new money circulating. So in many ways, the baby boomers, especially like the first half of that generation, were able to go to college, get these degrees, and were able to spend those degrees, meaning in this case to get good jobs or get on good career paths, prior to the effects of the proliferation of degrees actually working their way through the system, meaning you know pushing down the value of an individual's degree. So going to college worked great for them. They did it with little or no debt and were able to, in many cases, get good jobs with those degrees. So many baby boomers then today preach a dogma of go to college, go to college, don't worry about the cost, it'll be worth it, don't worry about it, which was good advice 40 or 50 years ago. Would you take investment advice from 40 years ago? Would you pick up a business magazine or newspaper from 40 years ago and take the investment advice in there and like literally follow it and buy the companies they said to buy and and whatever? Would you do that? Would you take advice on which car to purchase from issues of car and and driver uh, magazine from 40 years ago? I mean – There are some kinds of advice that are timeless, for sure. I'd agree with that. But this is not one of those types of advice. Another thing to think about is this. And I know if if you're under 25, you might not like this or you might not believe this or whatever, but you can look up the science if you don't believe me. Most human beings' brains don't fully mature, especially when it comes to things like rational cost-benefit analysis of choices. Don't fully mature until about the age of 25, if not slightly older. This, by the way, is why societies always tend to prefer young men between the age of about 17, 18, and 25 for most of their frontline combat infantry and things like this. Because you get a young man who's, number one, they're all full, you know, just juiced to the gills on testosterone and other hormones like that. They're aggressive. They think they can rule the world. But then also their brain isn't mature enough yet for them to make rational cost-benefit analysis. So they all think they're Captain America and will go charging up a machine gun defended a hill. Whereas you take an older guy and tell him to do that, and he might look at you and say, no, I don't care. You can throw me in the brig or whatever, but uh, I ain't committing suicide that way. And you see this all over society. Young men under the age of 30 commit the vast majority of things like violent crimes and particularly commit the sorts of crimes that are more likely to end up in you getting caught and and convicted. Not to say that older people don't commit crimes as well, but if you look at what types of crimes they tend to predominate, it's more of like your your white-collar crimes and things like that. So keep that in mind. And I can tell you as someone who's not quite a decade on the far side of 25 – 
when I look back at some of the things I did from sort of my teenage years through my early 20s, some of the decisions I made, some of the things that, you know, I thought were good ideas or things that I, I was clueless as how risky they are. I mean, it, you, you can't even believe it. It's almost like waking up from being drunk and you look back and at some of the things you did while you were intoxicated and you go, holy crap, how did I ever think that was a good idea? It's not quite as extreme, but it's it's pretty strong when you look at what you thought was a good idea before about age 25 and what looks like a good idea after. So yeah, there are some people who at the age of 18 already do know what they want to do and are sure about it and, and so on. And, and that's great for those people. But I think that not that many 18-year-olds as, as a percentage of the overall population really are are so sure of what they want to do with their lives and are mature enough and rational enough that they can do things like choose a college, choose a major and make choices that make rational sense for the rest of their life. There are people who can do that at age 18, but that damn sure isn't everybody and it's nowhere near a majority who are able to do that. There are plenty of people for whom college might be a good idea, but not when they're 18 or 19 years old. For some people, it's better that when they're 18, 19, not yet mature, not yet sure what they want to do, better that they do something else for a while rather than go to college, potentially waste a massive amount of time and money with the strong possibility that they might not even complete the degree at the end of it all for one reason or another. They might be better off going out into the real world and doing something, and maybe they'll go back to college when they're 25 or 30 or older. If they decide that's really what they want to do and it's really going to help them in life, then they can do that then. Or, of course, they might be those people who end up being completely successful without ever earning a college degree, and there are plenty of such people throughout history and walking around today who fit that profile. I'm sure all of us either are those people, uh, if you're not those people, you at least know people who fit that description, very successful with no college, and probably many of us know, if we are not already this person, <laughs> many of us know people who have college degrees, maybe even really good-looking college degrees in theory, who ran up a pile of debt and got their degree and now end up getting a job that they could have gotten without the degree in the first place. The degree is no help to their job prospects, even if they get a decent job. Or they might have a degree and get no job. And then there's the people that run up a ton of debt in college and never even get the degree. So these are all very bad outcomes. And if you're at all unsure, if you're at all skeptical, you can always wait. Take a couple years, take more than a couple years. Go try some jobs, go do something. You can always come back to it if you decide that you want to, and you'll come back to it at a, at a point in your life where you have more wisdom from being out in the world, where your brain is literally more mature and more rational, and you might also be in a much better financial situation. You could go work a job for 10 years and save up a lot of money to help you get through college without debt. These are just some suggestions. And again, I'm a fan of the liberal arts, the, the classical idea of, of becoming a well-rounded, educated person. That's basically the education that I got as an undergraduate. I went to a small private liberal arts college for my bachelor's degree. I took courses in a wide variety of, of subjects besides just history, my major. And I really learned a lot, and I got a great education. And it has helped me in life in a bunch of ways, not just in terms of getting a job. But when it comes to an old school liberal arts education, I would say, A, it's not for everybody and it's really not even for most people. What it's for 
who it really benefits, a, a liberal arts education really benefits someone like me who was genuinely curious and interested in learning about lots of stuff for its own sake and for whom the degree, the grades, the degree and potential career prospects were not of primary importance at the time, but just learning stuff. I was one of those people. I wanted to learn lots of stuff and that's me, but that's not everybody. And it's okay if it's not you, but don't try to pretend it is you if it's not you. And I would also stress, again, liberal arts education shouldn't be done if it's financed mostly or entirely with loans. I ended up doing okay because I'm a person who actually ended up getting a decent job in my area of study. My history major and my history master's degree got me a job teaching history at a college. So I did okay. But I am by no means typical of people these days who get college degrees. I know plenty of people who have college degrees who either don't have a job or have some cruddy job that, that their degree didn't help them get. And I can tell you at the college where I work, I've been on uh, job, you know, hiring committees a bunch of times because I'm, I'm sort of a muckety muck within my department now. And I can tell you that every time, and this is a, this is for decent jobs that the pays decent, but it's not, it's not huge. And every time a job opens up for a faculty member at my college, we get 50, 60, a hundred applicants, almost all of whom are actually fully qualified for that one job. Now, what does that tell you? What does that tell you about the prospects of somebody with a degree in, you know, history or a degree in political science or a degree in philosophy or whatever. And again, I'm a fan of all those subjects, but be realistic, be realistic about your odds. When I got my job where I teach, I beat out dozens and dozens of people who were equally qualified on paper. So I went the conventional route with college and everything right after high school. And I did okay, but I'm the first to tell you not everybody is going to do okay the way things currently are stacked. So to Caitlin or to others in her shoes, if you're not sure what you want to do, or if you do know what you want to do, but it's something you don't necessarily need college to be successful at, then don't go. And don't go, at least for the time being anyway, if you have to put all or most of it on loan. Do everything possible you can to reduce your costs. Things like dual enrollment, things like AP, uh, advanced placement, things like community college for as many credits as you can get there. And also relentlessly pursue as many scholarships as you can. And just a little tactical advice that you might try if you're scholarship hunting. When I was a student and I was hunting scholarships, I found that I sometimes did better by accumulating more but smaller scholarships where there was less competition for these more modest size scholarships rather than going after, you know, one giant scholarship that everybody and their brothers applying for. So just something you might want to look into. And again, this was uh, 15 years ago or so that I was doing this, but I found that some of the smaller scholarships, you had less competition. And if you rack up a bunch of small scholarships, that might be as much money as one big one. So just as an example, one of the small private scholarships that I got was through the Daughters of the American Revolution. They had, I'm assuming they still have, but I haven't checked, so I don't know. But when I was in school, they had a, a modest scholarship for people who were history majors. And it wasn't a ton of money, but I applied for it. I got it. And it basically bought all my books for me while I was an undergrad. So things like that, you know, be relentless. Because even if you have to end up with an albatross around your neck financially, 
starting off in the world, it, it certainly is better to start off with a much smaller albatross than a huge one. And remember, I can't stress this enough. Even if you do end up going to college at some point, you don't have to go immediately after high school if you're unsure about anything. I really do think most people, not everyone, but most people who are college material would do better if they waited a few years first. But of course, every individual is unique. So you need to really think critically for yourself about what's best and about what you really want to do and consider every angle. Don't let yourself get steamrolled by people offering well-intentioned but obsolete platitudes about college being this magical golden ticket to upper-middle-class affluence. If that was ever true, it sure ain't true these days for most people. So that's just my thoughts, my advice. Any of you, please, you know, I hope my thoughts are thought-provoking for you. I, I hope there's some value in what I've said, but don't just listen to me mindlessly, uh, Either. Everyone do your own thinking, your own research. Decide what's best for you, given your circumstances, your desires, and so forth. So, sorry that that rant went a bit long. I hope it wasn't too long for anybody, but it is obviously a subject about which I believe I am knowledgeable, both as a student and as an insider, you know, in the business, so to speak. And it's also something that I know I'm passionate about as well, so... Hopefully it's been of some value to many of you listening. Next listener email for this episode comes from Brett. And Brett actually wrote in with two questions um, a few weeks back, and they were both good, so I decided to use both of them. So first one from Brett is, What is your opinion on the vilification of Muslims since 9-11, and how could it be counteracted? What is your opinion on the dehumanization of our current Muslim and Iranian quote-unquote enemy? Following the shooting in Tennessee, I am seeing more of the all Muslims must pay mentality. It happened with the communist and the Nazis and Japanese during their time. As a retired veteran of three deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, one would assume I would be most angry and follow the narrative, yet I know not all Muslims are terrorists like our country would have us feel. In conversations with my right-wing family, most feel it is acceptable to bomb and murder Muslims because we cannot have the fight, quote, in our backyard. Any conversations turn into, they are bred as monsters, blah, blah, blah. I hate the racism and fear that is used by the political parties to further justify war and spending. The ignorance that has been engineered into our society is making it very difficult to mediate the problem. What do you think could help? Well, Brett, that is a great question. To anybody who believes that American militarism and interventionism has gone far too far, and anyone who would like to bring more of the population back down to a level of sanity, I think that is a very important question. I'm going to do my best to share some thoughts on the whole thing, and I spent a lot of time, out of all the questions, I probably spent the most time, I think, thinking about this one, because it's something I had never thought about from the perspective which Brett is asking, the perspective of, you know, what could be done to try to improve the whole situation regarding this. I've, I've thought about it from the perspective of, like, what's going on? How is this being brought about? Who's causing it? Who's pumping out the propaganda and for what purpose? And I, I have to say, I hadn't really thought about it from the other perspective of, are there any possible solutions or ways to manage this whole thing better? And not that the other questions in this episode weren't great questions. They are, but I think this was the question that 
is in such a way that I had done the least amount of thinking beforehand. A lot of these other things I'm going to be talking about in this episode are things that I've already put a lot of thought into, you know, over the years prior to receiving these questions from listeners. So in, in those cases, it was a bit easier for me to just, you know, kind of pull up the file in my mental hard drive, so to speak, and, and share my thoughts. This was one I really had to almost start with a blank slate. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think I have any really strong or, or, or simple answers or solutions to this problem. I think there are some potential approaches to take. And I think that there may be plenty of things that I just haven't thought of that can be done to try and uh, improve the situation as much as people can. But if, if there are, I just don't know about them. But anyway, I will share my thoughts because I think it's an interesting and uh, important topic. So um, first off, Brett, I can I can sympathize. I'm not a military veteran myself, but I come from a family, sounds somewhat like yours, a family that is, for the most part, quite right wing and uh, contains lots of military veterans, many of whom have not, like you, um, come away from the experience with, with a bit more of an anti-war uh, perspective and a bit more skeptical about these things. I, I think... M- some of the military veterans in my family are, are that way, but many of them are not. Many of them are still, you know, drinking the Team America Kool-Aid for whatever reason. So I very much understand, you know, what it's like when you're in a family situation and all of a sudden people start ranting about, you know, killing all the Muslims or, or something like that, or we've all got to be looking out for ISIS hiding under our beds um, and, and other plenty of other issues as well where that happens and you're faced with a situation of, of what to do, you know, and sometimes you speak up and, and argue with them and sometimes you don't. And it's kind of like a, a no win situation, at least in my experience when that happens, because very often when you take the contrary position, especially if you're with a group of family members who all think the same, they'll just gang up on you and, it's very difficult and very rare that no matter how much reason and evidence you bring to bear, no matter how calm and rational you make your arguments, very often, especially when you have that gang or pack mentality, um, nothing's going to matter to them. I think you have a better chance of maybe making people at least question their own beliefs and assumptions when it's one-on-one, just you and one other person. And, and then you can, because they don't have that whole being part of a pack situation when that happens, and they're much more, in my experience anyway, open to uh, contrary evidence and different ways of looking at things. So, in general, one thing I, I would suggest as maybe a focal point for addressing this, just in general, is to try not to engage in collectivist thinking yourself. And when others are clearly doing it, to try to, in some way that is kind of gentle and firm at the same time, to dissuade others from doing so as well, or at least try to cause them to question some of their own assumptions. I know the temptation to just, when, when you see the holes in their argument and you see the hypocrisy and things like that, I know the temptation is there for me as it is for everybody to just, you know, be aggressive and call them evil bastards and what have you. And, you know, we've all had days where that's our response to facing these sorts of, of points of view. Um, you know, none of us are perfect. We all will sometimes 
lose our cool, but from just the cold-blooded standpoint of what's most likely to actually cause people to question their own prejudices, generally the the aggressive argument approach is not the most likely to lead to that outcome. Now, I believe there are some people who, for one reason or another, are so far gone in their pre-existing prejudices that there's nothing you could do, that the confirmation bias is so strong that you could present just the most gigantic mountain of evidence against their point of view, and they'll double down on it. So there is a certain degree of triage that takes place. And by the way, this question also ties into another question that I'm going to be dealing with towards the end of the show. I believe it's the one from Jim also dealing with this, you know, what do you do with people in kind of your personal circle who have beliefs that are, you know, very contrary to your own. If you're someone who believes in things like peace and liberty. So I am in my response to that one going to get a little bit more into this whole topic of how to approach it. And I'll even suggest a few books that you all can look at if you're interested in maybe learning a bit more about how to effectively maybe not convert someone instantaneously to your point of view. That rarely if ever happens, but to at least plant those little seeds that even if during an exchange with somebody, it appears that your arguments have not affected them at all. Nonetheless, you've planted a seed somewhere in their mind and days, weeks, months, perhaps even years later, they really start to look at things differently and maybe, maybe eventually come around to your own point of view. I think it's unfair to expect anybody to instantaneously reject all of their previously held beliefs, no matter how good of an arguer you are and how much evidence you can muster, because that's just not how people work, myself included. It's very rare that someone will dramatically alter their beliefs very quickly just from, you know, one encounter or one piece of information. For most people, myself included, I believe it is much more of a gradual process, a gradual process of letting go of old beliefs and ideas that are not true and accepting ones that are closer to the truth. So anyway, reject all forms of collectivist thinking and try to, as politely and nicely and calmly and gently and strategically as possible, because if you get aggressive, it'll backfire to try to dissuade others from doing so as well, or to question that. Because the root of a lot of this, perhaps of all of it, really, is collectivist thinking. Thinking of giant aggregates of people. All Muslims are bad. All members of such and such race are bad. All members of this group over here are evil. That's the type of thinking that benefits the powers that be, because they can exploit that. And of course, the classic, the classic book that really shows this through allegory, essentially, is George Orwell's 1984. And by the way, coming up in the relatively near future, I am going to be doing an episode of reviewing and comparing three classic sci-fi dystopias, all of which are a bit different from each other. And those are Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, George Orwell's 1984, and Ira Levin's This Perfect Day. So look for that probably to be coming up in the next few weeks or so. In 1984, if you haven't read it, and many people have, 1984 really does a great job of showing through this sci-fi dystopian allegory how the state creates enemies and drums up hatred in people and then uses this in order to empower itself at the expense of everybody. 
So the root of all this sort of stuff, racism and other forms of bigotry, a desire to get revenge against entire huge categories of people for the actions of some members of that group, this is a, a huge problem. The people that think all Muslims should pay for 9-11 or for some other attack, the people that think that it's sensible to blow up entire towns to try and get a handful of bad guys there, that it's totally morally justified and rational to blow up 50 innocent bystanders to get one guy who maybe once might have had a meeting with some terrorists or something. This is what you get with that sort of collectivist thinking of, of dealing with people as aggregates. For example, this is literally the same mindset that has led so many Americans to heartily and unquestioningly approve of nuking Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as discussed in the last episode of this podcast, killing literally tens of thousands of people, most of them non-combatants who are not involved in running the Japanese state at all, for the actions of the Japanese state and some of their soldiers. The roots of all sorts of atrocities are this collectivist thinking. So I think that's one of the things that you should see it as key to attack. But just like a wily guerrilla fighter, you don't go in there blazing away with bazookas and tanks and heavy artillery, because that's probably not going to lead you to success. Maybe it'll lead you to a Pyrrhic victory at best, but it might not even lead to that. Instead, like a wily guerrilla fighter, you approach the problem in a in a sneakier way. Not not that you should be misleading anybody, lying to anybody, being intellectually dishonest, or anything like that. But to understand that just to loudly and aggressively shout facts and logic at someone, this human beings are just not mentally wired to take that and be converted by that. It's just not how it works. It would be simpler and easier if it was. We could all just shout facts and everybody would suddenly see the light of, of truth, but that's just not how it works. So methods of communicating that are a bit more strategic, a bit more, a bit less directly aggressive and confrontational, will oftentimes cause somebody to question their own points of view. Clearly, a lot of these attitudes come from the mainstream media in various ways. And perhaps it's a good omen for this and many other things as well, for that matter, many other problems that Fewer and fewer people, as time goes on, are actually listening to, let alone believing, the mainstream media. And yet again, as in many other areas, cynicism against the establishment, which in this case I'd include both the mainstream media and the political class themselves, cynicism against the establishment might actually be the source of some salvation in the long run. Another thing kind of related to that that might also provide some salvation for people is time. And the reason I say that and what I mean by that is my perception is that it tends to be mostly older people who are the most susceptible to this sort of thinking, this sort of thinking of all members of whatever group are evil and, you know, therefore there's no such thing as non-combatants and innocent civilians amongst those people and do whatever it takes to kill them. And again, that's just my observation of the general tendency. Are there older people who are not that way? Absolutely. I know plenty of them personally. And are there younger people who buy into this, this nonsense of collectivist demonization of certain groups? Yeah. My point is that just the overall tendency that I observe and, and, you know, just anecdotal could, 
could be that I'm not seeing the, the full picture looking at hundreds of millions of people, but my basic perception is that the correlation tends to be older people more susceptible to that line of thinking. Now, why would that be? Well, in part, it links back to what I said a moment ago about the mainstream media. Everyone knows, and lots of studies back this up, that the older you are, the more likely you are to get most or perhaps even all of your news and information from the mainstream media. Well, that's, you know, very much controlled for the state's benefit. Conversely, the younger you are, the more likely you are to consume what's known as alternative media, which is not perfect and gets things wrong and it's, you know, not all of it's good stuff or, or true or whatever, but at least alternative media presents a lot more points of view and ways of looking at things than the mainstream does, and it's typically much less subservient to state narratives. So a younger person is less likely to be getting a huge amount of their information from the mainstream media. That affects them. And then also, I think it's just due to people who are, you know, the older generations living today Look at what was their childhood and adolescence. When, when did it take place? Well, the oldest people who are still around today lived through World War II. There, there aren't many people left who um, around who were old enough to have served in the military during World War II. But there are still a pretty high number of people who were little kids during World War II. And there's a lot of people, including the baby boom generation, who spent most of their younger years during the height of the Cold War. And so this affects their mentality because not only were these things such as the Cold War going on during their formative years, but during those years as well, there was virtually no such thing as alternative media other than, you know, some small underground newsletters and, and pamphlets and things. Nothing like today in the age of the Internet. So people who spent their formative years during something like the, um, you know, most tense parts of the Cold War, they were bombarded with this propaganda to not only demonize communists and Russians and what have you, but also just to, in general, put their mind into this paradigm of us versus them paranoia. And this is why it was so easy for so many people of those older generations to very quickly transition to seeing all Muslims as being the new version of Russians and communists and what have you, because they have this us versus them paradigm within their mind. When the Soviet Union fell apart, they sort of had to look around for something new, and thankfully for them, it didn't take long to find a new enemy, the Muslims. Of course, some of the people of that older generation are still seeing the Russians as the number one threat. And they can't understand why somebody like Putin would not be a fan of America and specifically the way America deals with Russia. Because to these sorts of older people, the idea is that, well, the Russians are just one of these cartoon bad guys and there's never any reason if, if they're disgruntled at America, it must be because they're plotting to take over the world or something like that. So anyway, my perception is that those who are over the age of 50 or, again, with exceptions, many of you listening I know are exceptions to this if, if you're that age group. Many of those who are over the age of 50 are far more likely to fall into this sort of thinking because they spend a great deal of their childhood and their young adulthood in the thick of the Cold War with the entire mindset drilled into them from very early childhood. It was everywhere in those years, you know, duck and cover, all these movies and, and, um, TV shows and comic books and whatever of the communist menace and so on. And the larger notion of 
uh, Manichaean, nationalistic, dualistic worldview, this hunker-in-the-bunker mentality, very paranoid, the entire world is plotting against America, and we got to take them out before they take us out. And even if that was to some degree true during the Cold War, it's not like it's true in the same way today or even remotely on the same scale. So I think it's possible if the current younger generation, those people who are, you know, maybe 40s and under, and especially under 30, if they are not successfully propagandized, and I understand, of course, the state and the establishment will attempt to propagandize them, is attempting right now to propagandize the younger people of today. But what if it's not as successful for a variety of reasons? What if, despite their best efforts, it just doesn't take the way it used to? What if due to things like technology and just sort of generic cynicism, the younger people of today can successfully avoid being totally brainwashed? Well, then I think that as time goes on, those older generations of people are just simply going to die off, as every generation does, and that that mindset, assuming the youngsters are not successfully inculcated into that, that mindset then will also die off as well. So that's a possibility. And again, most of the ideas I have of, of what can be done or what might fix this problem are very long-term ideas. I, I just don't really have any, any short-term fixes. I wish I did. I'd be happy to share them if I did. I'll also throw in something. Um, while I'm generally quite dubious about conventional politics to solve problems, I'll throw out another possibility. And that is, if the United States, the United States government, by choice or by necessity, and I think the latter is probably much more likely, becomes less interventionist abroad, especially in the Middle East and some of the other Islamic regions of the world, if that were to take place, this disengagement, I think, would likely significantly reduce the occurrence and likelihood of attack by Islamic fundamentalists against Americans. In other words, the actual Muslim terrorists that do exist, who are, you know, a tiny fraction of a percent of the billion or whatever Muslims in the world, they're going to have much less ability to get support to carry out their attacks if Team America is not constantly rampaging around those parts of the world, blowing up people and things. Of course, if America disengaged from that part of the world more, the diehard Islamists who do exist would still exist. But the point is, they'd have a much harder time operating in the absence of large numbers of sympathetic non-combatants in their part of the world. And all you have to do to understand this and how it works is to study the theory and practical history of guerrilla warfare and fourth generation warfare. I mean, even Mao Zedong, who's, you know, one of the horriblest monsters of history, but obviously was a clever, cunning guy and knew a thing or two about guerrilla warfare. Mao Zedong famously likened insurgents to fish and the sympathetic non-combatant civilian population that supports them to the sea. And he says, as long as the fish have sea, have the sea to swim in and to nourish them, they can keep going. But by, you know, implication, if you remove the sea, Right. If you if you drain it, so to speak, um, re reduce or eliminate the amount of civilians who really support these groups, then it significantly reduces the ability of the actual terrorists to successfully operate. So I would argue that American interventionism causes many average non-combatant civilians in many of these parts of the world to be sympathetic to Al Qaeda types when they might otherwise very much not be. A lot of people in these parts of the world don't really like 
a lot of the rules and things inflicted by groups like ISIS. But to many of them, it's the only alternative they see to try to get the foreigners out and stop, you know, the things that are inflicted on them by either the U.S. or by American proxies. So there would be significantly less support and therefore less ability, less efficacy for groups like Al-Qaeda if there were not all these American-run or American-sponsored or supported things that anger so many people in the Islamic parts of the world. Things like drone attacks, things like secret prisons and torture centers and so on, things like support to nasty local governments that the people who actually live in those areas don't like and don't want, but that America likes because they play ball. Do away with all that sort of stuff, and that would, I think, significantly diminish the non-combatants' support for the genuine crazy radicals. And in turn, the more you reduce the likelihood of actual terrorist attack and things like that, the more it's tough for the government's message of demonizing Muslims as all being scary terrorists and whatever, um, it's harder for that to work if there's just nothing going on. Now, is there a possibility of false flag and so on? Absolutely. Absolutely. But there, I think, spreading an awareness of how false flag attacks work and that they, they do happen, they are real, that there is truth to some conspiracy theories, and getting people just to be more critical, independent thinkers in whatever way you can. You know, I, I try to inculcate above all else in the classes I teach and in my podcasts. Yes, I'm trying to convey historical facts and information and so on, but the larger kind of meta message that I'm trying to communicate and trying to um, encourage in others is above all else, genuine, true, critical thinking. And the more we can, uh, in whatever way each of us can as individuals, try to spread that attitude and skill set of questioning things and thinking for yourself and using reason and evidence to figure out what's true. The more we can all do that, the harder it's going to be for the government if it decides, you know, if genuine Muslim violent radicals started to dry up, if let's say America uh, was just so broke that it had to stop all the militarism in the Islamic world and had to disengage and therefore actual Muslim threats and attacks to America starts to dry up. And let's suppose down the road, some president or whoever decides that, man, we need to get something going again, get that militarism going again. That was great. We got a lot of money and power from all that fear. And they decide to do a false flag. Well, the more the population are awake to these possibilities and are in the mindset of thinking for themselves, the fewer people that a false flag, if it did happen, would potentially, you know, rouse to hatred and supporting of new wars and so on. A couple of documentary films I would refer you to if you're not familiar with um, how American policies in, in many ways help to create and empower terrorist groups. Just a few offhand I would, I would mention is, uh, first is Dirty Wars with the journalist Jeremy Scahill. He also has a book about the same stuff by the same title, Dirty Wars. And another one is the BBC documentary from a while back called Power of Nightmares. Power of Nightmares by the uh, documentary filmmaker Adam Curtis, who has a lot of very thought-provoking documentaries he's done over the years. I don't agree with him on everything in terms of his interpretation, and I think he occasionally uh, gets something wrong or whatever. But overall, I think that Power of Nightmares does a great job of showing the relationship that the various groups of 
the most hawkish Americans, such as the fundamentalist right wing and the neocons and so on, the relationship they have with violent Muslim fundamentalists, which is this symbiotic relationship where both groups need each other, the American hawks and the Islamic violent radicals. Both groups need each other, and both groups in a way feed each other. I think Brett makes a great point when he says that, and when he points out that this sort of thing has happened repeatedly in different times in American history, paranoia and the overreacting against threats, which may be uh, real or may not, but this, you know, whether it's a real threat or not, just crazily overreacting and wanting to take out your fears and frustrations or desires for revenge on entire groups of people. And I think you can see this all the way back, even in a lot of the Indian wars. So many of the cases in the Indian wars where groups of Indians who were either a minor threat or in many cases not even really a threat at all were viciously attacked and, you know, wiped out or massacred or what have you. So this, this paranoid mindset, which I think human beings are prone to in some ways, but then it's exploited by the state and by other powerful institutions in order to mobilize people to do things they would normally not do. It's a very powerful thing. In some ways, it, it's there evolutionarily, I think, to protect us from genuine threats to our, our family and our tribe. But unfortunately, in the modern age, it can really be exploited for over-the-top carnage and just horrible crimes. And obviously, certain mindsets, certain belief systems encourage this tendency more than others. And I think that in the case of American history, that this tendency to really be merciless with any perceived enemy, no matter how minor of a threat, if any, they actually are, this willingness to just wipe out entire groups of people that you don't like, philosophically, in the specific case of American history, I think it goes all the way back to the Puritans originally. They definitely had this attitude of our way or the highway, and the highway often means you all get wiped out. And of course, over the centuries, I believe this Puritan mindset has permeated into many other groups within American society, many other subcultures, not just the original Puritans or their modern-day descendants. By the way, Brett mentioned uh, he's a veteran of multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'll just mention my own experience with veterans of these recent wars is very interesting. In teaching college for, geez, I guess now eight years, um, nine years, because uh, before I got my current job, I was an adjunct at multiple schools for a year. Um, teaching college for nine years, I've had lots and lots of veterans come through my classes who are, you know, going to college on GI Bill money, having completed, you know, however many tours they did. And of course, in my classes and the way I teach them, a lot of these issues come up all the time. Even in ancient history, I, I bring up imperialist governments and, and the way that they manipulate people and wars to their own benefit as a class. And it's amazing how often the veterans in my classes are the ones that are the most out of the entire class. They're the ones that are actually the most amenable to my points of view. Of, of criticizing war and criticizing the state and, and the way that, you know, the sort of war is a racket type of ideas, which, by the way, in my U.S. History 2 classes, that's one of the things we read and spend a whole class period discussing is War is a Racket by Smedley Butler. And it's amazing the degree to which it's the veterans who are the ones most 
on my side or at least close to it on these things. And it's the students that, that have never been in the military that, um, while some of them are on my side too, as a group, they're, they're, um, less inclined to quickly be sympathetic to the point of view I'm presenting. And I've also noticed that it seems like the students who have seen the, the most genuine combat or, or the most, you know, crazy stuff or what have you are the ones who are the most on my side. Out of all the many veterans I've had and talked to in my classes over the years, I can only think of one that I can recall that was very much still, you know, pro-Team America and we've got to wipe out all of our enemies and, and that simple-minded jingoism. Literally only one out of, out of I don't know, 50 or 60 or more veterans I've had come through my classes. Vast majority of them are, to one degree or another, generally skeptical of current and recent U.S. wars, at the very least. So related to that, one thing I would say is I think it's very important for veterans who no longer believe in our current wars or who, are, who have become anti-war in general, I think it's very important for veterans of that type to speak out on this stuff. And the reason I say that is simply because to the sorts of people who tend to be more prone to things like anti-Arab or anti-Muslim propaganda – these sort of right-wing nationalist people, to them, the words of a veteran do often carry a lot more weight than the words of someone else. Not always. A lot of times these right-wing jingos are just immune to any kind of uh, contrary information. But often in my experience, when it's a veteran expressing doubts about the wisdom of these policies and this militarism, that's more likely anyway to cause a non-veteran right-wing jingo to really kind of question themselves. So anyway, that's about all I have to say on the topic as of right now. Um, I, I wish I had some sort of, of simple suggestion or whatever that, that, would that would cause this gigantic problem that literally affects many millions of people to get better. But um, I'll throw the ball in the court of the audience. If any of you listening have any ideas besides what I've said of ways to maybe approach trying to get this situation better, I don't know. Um, I think a good thing for many people is to actually meet someone from a group that they're supposed to dislike. I know that in my own life, I've known several Muslims from different countries and so on who were just great people, who were just great people, who didn't want to hurt anybody, didn't want to force anyone to convert to their religion, who didn't want to or anything like that. And so having known some people like that, it immunizes you to some extent when someone comes along and is like, hey, we need to just, you know, round up all the Muslims and do whatever to them. You, you think of, you know, your friend or your, your acquaintance. You think, I don't want to see that guy who, you know, I've hung out with and whatever. I don't want to see something bad come to him. He's a decent guy. He's a good neighbor. He's not hurting anybody. It's true of almost any group, any demonized group. The more you have interactions with members of that group and you realize they're not all crazy monster orcs the way you're supposed to think, the more you, you realize that, no, the, the whole notion of condemning entire groups of people is wrong. Now, how to foster those interactions and those relationships? I don't know. You know <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's realistic to set up some sort of a program to like try and get every American a nice, friendly Muslim buddy. <laughs> um I just don't think that's feasible, but, you know, those sorts of interactions, having having a friend or having someone who helps you who's a member of a, of a marginalized group or a demonized group is often a great thing to cause people to question 
what it is they believe about those people. So anyway, any of you listening, and do any of you have any ideas? This is a very tough question to which I don't think there are any simple or easy solutions I can think of. But of course, as always, perhaps I'm wrong. So if anyone has any suggestions about ways to approach this issue, please feel free to chime in on the comment section for the episode. Second email from Brett. I don't have the link, but on Ron Paul's Institute for Peace and Prosperity, he had an article written that nuclear weapons end up making for a more polite world because war has a far higher cost than conventional warfare. What say you? Do you think the horrors and risks of nuclear weapons outweigh the risk they pose when in the hands of the state? Also, if we were able to one day hit the button and convert to Ancapistan, what would become of all the excess military hardware and nuclear weapons lying around? Thanks for another good email, Brett. And my response is, I think that there's clearly some empirical truth to the claim that nuclear weapons have raised the cost of warfare in the sense of large-scale conventional warfare, because there's always the possibility if there's a large-scale conventional warfare between nuclear powers for it to go nuclear. And so I think it's true that that has reduced conventional warfare between great powers or between nuclear powers. And this is why, for example, the superpowers of the Cold War era, the USSR and the USSA, sorry, Freudian slip, but I don't take it back, these superpowers never fought each other directly the way that the great powers of the day fought each other in World War One or World War Two, or even back in the Napoleonic Wars, for that matter, because then there's the possibility in the post-nuclear age of it escalating to that level and then, you know, entire nations potentially face annihilation. And certainly a lot of the political class faces the brunt of war hitting them in a way it might not if it just stayed, you know, soldiers and tanks fighting each other in the field. However, I will point out something that is often overlooked by people when looking at this question and when looking at the wars of the 20th century. It is true that there has not been a direct great power versus great power war since the end of World War II, but there's still been massive costly war going on pretty much constantly throughout the second half of the 20th century and into the early part of this century, you know, to this day. It's just taken the form of things that we don't recognize as conventional world wars or great power wars. It's taken the form of proxy wars, and it's taken the form of things like fourth generation insurgency wars, very often with one or both sides to the conflict being sponsored by some outside great power. So the United States and Soviet Union never fought each other directly, but both of them were constantly involved in various parts of the world, one way or another, fighting each other indirectly. And oftentimes it was the local populations of these other parts of the world, far away in most cases from either the U.S. or the USSR, that bore the brunt of the destruction and carnage. And I've talked about this, I think, before, and I've, I've mentioned it in email exchanges with some of you. Um, I am still planning on, in the relatively near future, beginning a mini-series on kind of guerrilla warfare and unconventional warfare and so on. It may or may not end up being consecutive. I don't know. I have no idea how many parts it'll end up encompassing. But I'm trying to make it pretty comprehensive looking at the last 200 years. So I've been for a long time working on the preliminary research for it. And I don't think it'll be too long before I start putting together some episodes related to it. 
So obviously in there, we'll get into a lot of this more when we get to the 20th century, looking at unconventional warfare. But a place I'll suggest that gives a nice kind of overview of looking at all these quote-unquote small wars of the second half of the 20th century and looking at them uh, in totality, aggregating them together, and realizing that uh, there hasn't been peace since the nuclear age. There really hasn't. It's just been different kinds of war, but as bloody, or in some cases bloodier, than before. And a place to look at is War of the World by the historian Neil Ferguson. Very interesting historian, by the way. I by no means agree with him on everything. But I give him credit as a guy who's in many ways part of the establishment, but takes an unconventional look at many historical questions. And I always find his, his ideas and his books, you know, worth consuming and thinking about. And War of the World, which is both a miniseries that was on PBS as well as a large book, War of the World, one of the arguments he makes about the second half of the 20th century is he argues that during the Cold War, when supposedly there's peace because of nuclear weapons between the two superpowers, if you look at all the little wars that were going on all over the world the entire time, and you add up all the lives lost in these various proxy wars in places like Latin America, Asia, and Africa, the body count is actually comparable to that of the world wars. And I don't recall exactly how he totaled it, but I, I believe that he might have even said it was worse. Like, add up all the, all the quote-unquote small wars it killed more people than the world wars taken individually. So we just don't normally count all these little brush fire wars together, even though in many ways they were connected, or at least very often, with the common thread usually being one superpower or another or both being involved in them. So we can say that nuclear weaponry has, at least so far, caused peace, for the most part, between the major powers, the great powers of today, which are basically, as far as I can think, all the current countries I would consider great powers of any sort are all in the Northern Hemisphere. None of them have fought each other directly on any real scale since the coming of nuclear weapons. But in the so-called developing world, or what used to be called the Third World back in the days of the Cold War, which is mostly in the Southern Hemisphere, peace has not reigned. And not only have there been horrible conflicts between different developing countries, but there have been, in some cases, much worse internal civil wars and things like that. Again, where a great power is sponsoring one or the other side, but is not directly fighting, or if they are fighting, they're, they're only fighting the proxies of another great power, they're not fighting another great power directly. So, you know, think of Vietnam, right, where the U.S. and their proxies as well, the South Vietnamese, were fighting against the North Vietnamese, who were at least to some degree proxies of the Soviet Union and China. I know they're, they're kind of independent too. It's a, it's a complicated relationship. But, you know, basically you have a proxy war where the Soviets and Chinese are sponsoring Vietnamese communists to fight American troops directly and also American proxies as well. And remember, adding up the casualties on all sides, several million people died in the Vietnam, in the Vietnam War the vast majority of them non-combatants. And that's just one of these so-called small wars. And ironically, Team America's interventionism in so many places in the world has actually incentivized many third world countries to covet nuclear weapons because they look and they see, look, America invades and overthrows governments all the time, but they really don't 
when the country has nuclear weapons. They might bluster and talk and whatever, but they don't actually invade. So from the perspective of many third world regimes, they look at it and go, well, the one, you know, piece of garlic we can get for the American vampire, so to speak, is nuclear weapons. If we actually have nuclear weapons, then they actually won't do anything. They'll bluster and talk and whatever. And that was why many clever people figured out prior to the actual U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, many clever people figured out Iraq doesn't really have weapons of mass destruction because if they did, if they really did, and the U.S. government really knew it, there would have not been a large-scale conventional invasion of American forces. Wouldn't have happened. Then, of course, there's the old saw, and I forget who originally came up with this, but the old saying by uh, some brilliant analyst who, I can't remember who it was, said that, uh, an, an expert on probability, I believe it was, said that as long as nuclear weapons exist, it is a mathematical certainty that someone at some point, sooner or later, will use them. And when that happens, then there's the whole thing of how many other countries end up jumping into the fray with their nuclear weapons, and then how many unintended consequences flow from that as far as nuclear winter, all the other things. So, you know, to me, there's obviously some truth to the nuclear deterrent thing working on some levels in some regards, but it doesn't work in other ways, and in some ways it makes things worse. And if it's true that as long as they exist, somebody eventually will use them, I think that has so much potential to spiral out of control into just a general worldwide nuclear conflagration. It literally could. There's no exaggeration here. If all the powers in the world that have H-bombs and A-bombs loose them, it literally could wipe out all life on Earth, as far as I know. So to me, that's that's kind of a big risk. It's kind of a big risk. So people ask me, uh, and ask many people who share my point of view on the state, would you push the magic button to make the state disappear instantaneously, and I'm one of the people who says no. But if you were to ask me, here's a magic button, if you were to come to me and say, here's a magic button, if you push it, all nuclear and atomic weapons in the world just disappear, and people who know how to make them just have amnesia and no one can remember, I'd push the hell out of that button. Now, as to your second question of what might happen to military hardware if a stateless society were to come about, Obviously, I can only speculate, but here are some thoughts. Now, some part, some types of military hardware have great potential to be useful to private individuals and firms for, you know, non-annihilation and, and attack purposes. So there would be great entrepreneurial opportunities there. I'm obviously generally anti-war because I'm anti-state, and I don't think you can be anti-state without being war. The only time I think war is... Justified is when it's really, truly, honestly, clearly, purely defensive, which is actually rather rare. It does happen, but rather rare in human history that a war for any side is really purely defensive. But despite the fact that I'm generally anti-war in most cases, I must say that I do love weapons. I, I find them fascinating. I like studying them. And, and of course, I appreciate the types of weapons that actually might be handy to individual protection and other other purposes that don't violate things like the non-aggression principle. I have a particular fondness for rifles. Just find them fascinating and um, love shooting them and learning about them and so on. And I have to say also, 
I really love military surplus stuff of all kinds. I, I have a soft spot for military surplus, you know, rucksacks and other things like that. Um, in part because you oftentimes find great deals on things that are very useful, very well made and very inexpensive. And I'm, I'm not talking, I'm not into military surplus stuff that's like really old and super collectible and expensive. I'm more into the stuff that's cheap, but still in good shape and, and has some use in it. Because I'm into the outdoors, I'm into hiking and, and fishing and hunting and things like that and camping. And a lot of military surplus stuff you can get for a song that is extremely useful in those activities and is higher quality than what you would get buying new stuff on the civilian market. So I'm an anti-war guy who actually has a fair amount of random military surplus gear in my possession. So I think that there'd be a lot of opportunity there for entrepreneurs to sell off that stuff. And a lot of it could be put to uses that has no relation to military purposes. You know, for example, I've used Molly FLC vests as fishing vests. I've put pouches on there that I can throw some lures in, some flyers in, whatever, and use them for fishing. And it's great. They're rugged as hell and they're cheap. But obviously, you know, I think Brett's concern here is clearly the larger weaponry, the stuff that's too big or too powerful or too indiscriminate to be sensible weapons for the defense of individuals' lives and property, right? What What is done with that? Again, here, I think there'd probably be some great entrepreneurial opportunities for adaptation, for creative people with technical expertise to take a lot of the implements of war and make them into implements to be used either for self-defense purposes or even for just useful, nonviolent purposes altogether. So people with the technical expertise perhaps could find a way to, I don't know, um, convert nuclear weapons and other powerful weapons into things that are useful to peaceful purposes. Perhaps there's a way to get energy out of nuclear weapons while you know turning them into something harmless at the same time. I don't know. And I don't even have the technical expertise to speculate in any coherent way. But I think there's a lot of possibilities, a lot of potential there for using those resources, that hardware, to serve people and actually make their lives better. And who knows, once you unleash a genuine free market, how much innovation will take place? We can only imagine. There's also the possibility, in terms of the nuclear weapons, assuming that there's no way to you know, use them to make cheap power or something like that, Assuming there's no consumer purposes you could put them to, there's also the possibility of the, the way to handle disabling nuclear weapons by getting scientists to volunteer or to kick in a, a voluntary donation fund in order to pay scientists to disable nuclear weapons permanently. I mean, if there was a Kickstarter campaign to pay scientists to disable nuclear weapons, I'd throw in some money on that, and I think a lot of people would. And again, this is in the context of a society that is already going into statelessness, right? So I would point out that by definition, a society that's consciously choosing to phase out the state. Now, to be clear, not a society in which the state has failed and fallen apart and there's widespread violence of people who are still in the status mindset trying to erect a new one. But a society where people have consciously, for philosophical reasons and so on, chosen to just say, no, we're not doing that anymore, by definition – a society like that would have had to be one in which people were more reasonable than they are now, and in which some significant percentage of the population has adopted something like the non-aggression principle as the basis for their ethics. 
And so I think if such a society were coming into being, I don't think it would be implausible to anticipate some sort of a movement, some sort of an organization, call it maybe a philanthropic endeavor or whatever, to safely disable the things that couldn't be adapted to a peaceful or at least purely defensive type of a purpose, to disable the nukes, to destroy the biological weaponry that's stored in various places, to render inert any chemical weapons that couldn't be put to positive uses. I I would say that if there's the point where we're going into a stateless society, then these things I'm suggesting as possibilities to today in our current situation, in our current circumstances, might sound wildly implausible. But that's in the context of where we are now. I'm saying if we're going into a stateless society at some point in the far distant future, in that context, it's not so implausible that lots of people would be of the mind of, yeah, let's put to useful purposes what we can and render render safe and inert anything that we can't. So um, those are my thoughts. Thanks again, Brett, for uh, both of your emails. Next email is from Jim, and Jim writes... My sister recently started dating a local musician. He's a nice guy, and I gave her advice that she should be looking for people like him to be around. I later learned that he was in the National Guard, which seemed all right. He drills every other weekend. That kind of reminded me of the militiamen from before the American Revolution. Turns out he's trying to get deployed and is really aggressive about his belief that American soldiers should be in some desert halfway around the world. I was just wondering what your experience is with situations where a devout statist makes his way into your social circle and there's not much you can do to get rid of him. I feel like I'll probably just have to avoid certain topics of conversation, which is whatever. I love your show and share it every chance I get on Facebook and with other liberty-minded people. Keep it up, Jim. Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate that. And I think your situation is common for all of us radically pro-liberty people because we're a tiny minority amongst the population at large. So at least in terms of the overall structure of your situation, if not, of course, the exact details, I think this is something that most of us listening can relate to, and I certainly can relate to as well. And I think in cases like this, you've got to assess the situation specifically, like on a case-by-case basis, as far as what to do, because every situation is different Every individual is different in this situation. There are statists who can be reasoned with and who can be led to at least question some of their assumptions. And then there are those that are steadfast and will double down in confirmation bias no matter what you try. And again, this this relates back to uh, Brett's email about how to possibly try to defuse some of the uh, anti-Muslim and so on bigotry. While I'm very much anti-state and anti-military in general... I have to say, I have complex feelings about many of the rank-and-file people within the military. On the one hand, as someone who's an anti-war anarchist, I am against the wars that they fight. I usually think that those are wars that are fought for nefarious purposes, under false pretenses, or both. And obviously, my long-term goal is to see the entire career of soldier, as we know it, abolished. There will still be a market for private uh, security and protection and so on, but but that's different. Even though obviously some of the skills translate easily over, it's still just not the same thing. On the other hand, though, 
I do often admire some of the qualities of the rank-and-file individual soldier. Obviously not the carry-out-orders-without-question mentality that many of them are often inculcated with, but other aspects about them, things like their discipline, uh, some of their skills I admire. I admire those who have physical courage, even though I acknowledge that they're often used by the powerful people at the top of the oligarchy to, to use these skills and qualities for purposes with which I do not agree. In addition to that, I'll say that I have some empathy for those who join the military in a lot of cases. Not, not necessarily always sympathy, but empathy in terms of how and why many of them joined and what it is they believe they're doing. I think there are plenty of people who join the military for reasons that I would consider, you know, good intentions. Now, intentions aren't everything, for sure, and I'm not saying that makes everything about it okay. My point, though, is I think we all have to have some empathy for people who go into a profession like the military, or even in some cases the police, and go into it with good, noble intentions because they they believe the standard narrative about saving people and defending freedom and all that sort of thing. Again, doesn't mean that they're factually correct in, for believing that, just means that we should understand that and it should affect our approach to how we interact with such people. People like your sister's boyfriend that you mentioned, they're the product of a system that encompasses, it's in a way very totalitarian. It's a system that doesn't look totalitarian on the face of it, because it looks like there are all these separate institutions and so on. But in reality, in terms of the message they're inculcating into people, it's very, very uniform and totalitarian in many cases. So this system, in, in a way, encompasses family, it encompasses school, it encompasses mass media of all types, it encompasses churches, and many other institutions and interests glorifying America's wars. And to be blasted with those messages from almost infancy is a very hard thing to ever turn away from, to ever overcome, to ever come to a different point of view. Most people who grow up in America are constantly bombarded, almost from the time they're a baby, with the message that America's wars make Americans free and safe. Now, I don't believe that. Many of you listening probably don't as well, but plenty of people do. Again, not saying that makes everything they do okay or justifies anything they might potentially do, but it's important to understand that. And when you add to that the reality of the so-called poverty draft, where in many economically messed up parts of the country, in a lot of places, the military at least appears to people Many people, many young people coming up and, and finishing up high school, the military appears to them in terms of pay, benefits, educational opportunities, and so on, to offer the best prospects of anything that's available to lower class and lower middle class young men in particular, who no longer have as many blue collar manufacturing jobs available for them the way they did a few generations ago. So you have this very powerful recruiting situation where on the one hand, you've got tons of young men who have limited job prospects, or at least it appears that way to them with some reason, and then also are constantly bombarded with pro-war messages. 
from that starting point, it then appears entirely sensible to go into that career and to never question these wars and what it is you're being sent to do. And I must admit, part of the empathy I have here is because I myself had a brief window of time in which I came somewhat close to joining the military. I was raised in a very typical, standard, mainstream, conservative, Republican family, and while my father was never in the military, both of my grandfathers served in the military, as did many uncles and cousins of mine. And almost no one in my extended family, other than one maverick left-wing cousin I can think of, was genuinely anti-war or anti-military in any consistent sense. Um, that The one maverick left-wing cousin that I knew, only guy that I knew in my family growing up who had some sort of a principled anti-war stance. So I was completely encapsulated in that sort of culture and mindset myself, so I understand what it is. And again, while I reject many aspects of that mindset and that culture, I, I have the empathy, not sympathy, but empathy to understand why it's so powerful for so many people and why it's so hard for people to question and ultimately reject some of those beliefs. When I was finishing up high school, for a little while, I seriously considered joining the Marines because I've always enjoyed shooting, especially rifle shooting, and the Marines always have the reputation as being the best marksman on average. You know, there are specialists in other branches of the military who shoot very well, but just sort of the average rank-and-file Marine, you always hear, is, is a better marksman. They have better marksmanship training than the average member of the other armed forces. And so that was one of the things that I thought the Marines seemed pretty cool because of that. And in addition, I've always enjoyed outdoors things, you know, hiking, camping, that sort of stuff. Um, and I've always had a fascination with the martial arts. And while I've gotten out of it for many years and have been meaning to get back into it, um, for a while I, I was in judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and things like that when I was in high school. So, you know, add up that all those things up together in my background, and you can see how for a while I was very, very sympathetic to the possibility of joining the Marines myself. Now, of course, I ended up not joining. I've never actually been in the military. So, you know, I just sort of wavered briefly there and kind of, mm, maybe, and then ultimately decided no. And instead, I just went to college for history out of uh, high school because I had enough scholarships that I'd be able to complete a bachelor's degree without needing any, any loans or without needing to rely on potential GI Bill money if I did join the Marines. So all of my current loans that I have, I do have student loans, they're all from grad school. I have no, no student loans from undergraduate. Now, the main reason I chose not to enlist was that I just had, and maybe it's this little little anarchist seed. I, I've said before, I think we're all born anarchists and then have that kind of brainwashed out of us. I think for whatever reason, I don't know if it's genetics or some sort of experience somewhere along the way or what, I think I always, even when I was not unprogrammed back into being an anarchist, even when I was still somewhat within the status paradigm, I still had this little Jiminy Cricket voice in some dark recess of my brain where the spirit of the anarchist had not been fully snuffed out. And this little voice would just raise a little skepticism every now and then. Now, it took many years of thinking and studying and whatever to ultimately cause that voice to kind of run the show. I can remember when I was pondering whether or not to join the military, 
the main reason was this little voice in the back of my mind whispering stuff like, hey, you know, if you join, you're submitting to just be the tool of all those scumbag politicians, all those lying sociopaths at the top of the political pyramid. Do you really want to entrust your decisions to them as to whether or not you get sent into some war somewhere? Do you really want to do that? Things like that coming from my little, little skeptical, cynical Jiminy Cricket voice. And ultimately, that won out. Now understand, at the time, I was not, not really an anarchist, nor was I even an anti-war person. But I still, I had this little warning not to entrust myself to the powers that be that much, this inherent skepticism. And I was really worried about what if I got sent into a war that I really didn't agree with and was being ordered to fight against people that I believed in my own judgment were not really a threat to America or to freedom or anything like that. And one of the things I had in mind was the Somalia snafu depicted in Black Hawk Down, which took place, um, I believe, when I was somewhere in middle school or maybe early high school. And so that was one of the things in my head, like, wait a minute, what if you get sent into some Somalian civil war that you don't think is any of America's business and you're told to go in there and risk your life and potentially kill other people on something stupid like that? I think that was one of the examples that was foremost in my mind. So anyway, I listened to it. I did not join. And of course, in the years since, I've been thankful, especially as I became ultimately an anarchist and, a, and an anti-war person. But in particular, the timing of it makes me extra happy that I didn't join because I graduated high school in 2000. So if I had joined the military right out of high school, it's almost a certainty that I would have end, ended up deployed someplace like Iraq or Afghanistan after 9-11. And, you know, with hindsight and knowing how those things turned out and knowing what I know now about what was really going on and the real reasons for those wars, I'm glad that, you know, that I, I wasn't swept up in that. All of which is a very roundabout way of saying I think I have some understanding and empathy with those who are recruited and those who have the mindset of thinking that these wars are, are good and noble things and so on. Now, regarding your sister's boyfriend and your situation specifically, Jim, I would suggest, if you haven't already, you try to get a feel as to how much, if any, this guy might be open to questioning any of his current beliefs. Sometimes people will surprise you in that regard. But a lot of it depends on your approach and the context. And I already mentioned some of this stuff when talking about Brett's email and how to try to reduce people's animosity, especially friends and family members, animosity towards Muslims or what have you. But based on my own experience, including plenty of total abject failures on my part, I would suggest a mostly indirect and gradual approach to trying to, ch trying to change someone's minds about any major beliefs such as this. So I would say if you get the sense that this guy might be open to some questioning of his belief, some possible change, if you get that sense that he's not just totally locked down on it, then my advice would be to go slow, go gradual, avoid direct confrontation, avoid conventional argument or debate-style interactions. These tend to cause a person to double down on confirmation bias, to put up their defenses, and to not hear any of the reason and evidence you might have on your side, no matter how well thought out your arguments are and how articulate you are at making them. Now, if you get the sense that this guy's mind is absolutely closed, 
to alternative points of view and paradigms on this stuff, if you get that sense, then my suggestion is as soon as you come to that conclusion, stop pushing your point of view at all, even if you've been doing so in kind of a gentle, nice, indirect way, um, back off unless and until you have reason to think he's changing uh, to become more open-minded. If there's no choice about having this guy around in your life, then I would say just be nice and polite and don't bring up certain topics, as you kind of indicated, that sometimes that's all you can do. If for whatever reason you're not willing or able to just get someone out of your life and you have significant issues on which you have severe disagreements. The old saw about, you know, don't talk religion and politics with certain people, right? So, you know, perhaps there are other things the two of you have in common that you can talk about, things that you agree on or interests you have in common or whatever, the old cliches of sports and weather or who knows what. You know, sometimes, sometimes that's what you have to do if you're not going to just be avoiding somebody. I know I have family and friends in my own life with whom I don't agree politically or religiously or both, but these are people who are otherwise decent people who mean well. You know, I might think that their ideas are severely flawed, but they have good intentions. They're just wrong, in my opinion. And so as long as somebody is polite and respects boundaries, I'm okay keeping a relationship at a level of somewhat superficiality, but basically we agree to disagree on certain things and let's, you know, chat about things that we can have a pleasant chat about in situations where we're kind of thrown together. The only time I really ostracize or avoid somebody is when they're really overly rude or aggressive or pushy about their views, even if I've made it clear that I'm not interested and, hey, let's agree to disagree and whatever, someone who doesn't respect boundaries and whatever. But as long as someone is nice and polite about things and respects boundaries, I'm perfectly okay socializing with someone who doesn't agree with me. Now, am I going to voluntarily spend a ton of time with such a person? No. Am I going to try to become best friends with a person that I disagree with on something like that? No. But, but you know, I, I think there, I think it's entirely possible and fine to have some relationships that stay at a shallower level for the sake of just kind of convenience. Doesn't mean you abandon your principle. Doesn't mean you, you pretend to believe things you don't. And sometimes the best way to convert someone to your own ideas is to pull rather than push. In fact, it might be the best way in almost all cases. Pull rather than push. In other words, be the best person you can be. And if you're obviously a good, happy, and successful person, people will be intrigued by you and by your principles or how you live. And they might very well decide on their own to ask you about your philosophy or your ideas or your approach to life or who knows what. And in those circumstances, people will be much more open to what you're actually saying and much more willing to consider your ideas. If you're pulling them, if you're attracting them to you, then if you're pushing, if you're, you know, throwing your ideas at someone who hasn't asked about it and is not curious. And again, it'd be nice if you could just throw logic and, and evidence at somebody and it would work, but that's just not how people's brains are wired. Pull is much more effective than push in most cases. You don't want to be aggressively throwing your ideas at someone who hasn't solicited them. And again, if someone's doing that to you and you kind of make it clear like, okay, you know, let's agree to disagree and, and let's talk about something else and the person keeps pushing, then that's the case where I at least would consider saying, all right, I can't be around you if if you're not willing to sort of be polite and, and change the subject.
at a certain point. Now, some books I would recommend if you're interested or anyone listening is interested in more on how to approach just trying to get people to reconsider what it is they believe, just trying to get them to question some of their own beliefs and maybe consider some beliefs that you have that you think are better. There's some books I can recommend, and th these are knowledge and skills that are applicable throughout life. So, Jim, even if this particular guy ends up being resistant or ends up exiting the picture before you can accomplish anything in, in uh, changing his mind on anything, these skills will still come in handy throughout life. There's just better ways to communicate and interact with people more positively and not get into those, you know, shouting matches that accomplish nothing and things like that. And uh, some books I would recommend, Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and his last name is spelled H-A-I-D-T. And another one I would recommend that's very interesting is A Manual for Creating Atheists by Peter Bogosian. Now, the latter book, I am an atheist, but I'm not specifically recommending it in this case for that reason, because I'm trying to cause anyone listening right now to convert to atheism if you're not. But it's an interesting book because he looks not just at religion specifically, but at the larger idea of how people form their beliefs and how people defend their beliefs and what are better ways to try to encourage other people to question things that they believe and so on. So it's got a lot of applicability, and he draws together a lot of research on it. Also, one you might look into, there's a good one by Michael Shermer on this topic, and I can't remember which one it is, and I didn't jot it down in my notes. I think it's The Believing Brain, something like that, that looks into some of the science about why people believe what they do, even in some cases when it's clearly a belief that is not backed up by reason and evidence. So anyway, uh, sorry if my response was too long or got too autobiographical there, but I hope Jim and everyone else have found my thoughts of some utility on this matter, ways to approach this. You, you've got to be strategic. You've got to, sometimes as the old song says, know when to hold them, know when to fold them sort of a deal. And uh, I wish you the best, Jim, in figuring out how to handle all this. I hope I've been of some help. Thanks for your email. All right, and my last one for this episode, and this has obviously turned into a bear of an episode, a lot of good questions that I have, a lot of jabbering that I can do on. The last question for this episode comes from Leo, and Leo writes, I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to your podcast. Your lessons are always thought-provoking, and your topics are well-chosen. I do not always agree with you. However, this is one of the reasons I keep coming back. I would like to ask you two questions. When it comes to American history, do you believe Americans should be ashamed of our past or proud of it? And do you think our best days are ahead of us or behind us? I hope you don't think those questions are lame. I am very interested in your opinion. Keep up the good work. I wish you success, and I look forward to many future episodes. Thank you very much for your kind words and for the questions, Leo. Uh, my answers to these questions are a bit complicated, to say the least, you know, for a change with all these other complicated answers I've been giving in this episode. All right, so I'll start off by saying I think that there are many things about American history that are positive or admirable, but there are also plenty of things that are the opposite. And to me, American history as, as a term, as a category, is such a huge, multifaceted, complex thing that I find it pretty much impossible to characterize it entirely as positive or negative. So the question I would ask is, by American history, what does one mean? Not, not just Leo, but anybody who uses the category American history, right? Myself included. So is American history 
the history of the entity calling itself the United States government? Is American history the history of the people living in the political jurisdiction referred to as the United States or the place under the claimed control of that entity known as the United States government? Or is it something else, right? And of course, when you're looking at American history and you're writing a book or you're, you're putting together a lecture or doing anything else like that, putting together perhaps a documentary historical film, you also run into the, to the limitation, as you do with any category of history, that there are so many facets to it that it's inevitable that you will do some, even if you're really attempting to not have a bias, you will have a bias because you'll have a bias even just in terms of what you look at. So, for example, do you look at the political system as your primary definition of American history? Do you look at the people? And if you look at the people, who do you really look at? Do you look at the history of the elite? Do you look at the history of the middle or lower classes? And you could try to look at all of them, but inevitably you can't, without a book running to infinite pages, you can't look at every aspect of things together. Now, that said, when I look at American history through, through my lens, what do I see? Well, I see something that is extremely complicated, which is why my overall evaluation of it is very complicated. I see a history that encompasses hundreds of millions of people stretched out over several centuries. And if you want to go all the way back to the colonial period, basically four centuries – and at any given time, at any given snapshot moment within that time period, you can be looking at so many different people and places and things going on that I think it's inevitable that any any snapshot you take, there are great things going on, there are kind of neutral things going on, and there are terrible things going on. And at any given time in American history, you can see areas in which human liberty is expanding while other areas of human of um, liberty are being curtailed. So I'll just give you a couple of examples of time periods where there were great improvements for liberty at the same time there were great losses for liberty. One of them would be during the so-called Civil War. It's undeniable that to several million people, I forget the exact number of the slave population just prior to the war, but uh, however many millions that was, from their perspective, the people who, prior to the start of the Civil War, were flat-out chattel slaves and who, at the end, were freed. Yes, did they face other hardships and all sorts of problems in the aftermath of the war, some of which lasted for decades? No question. That said, from their perspective, that era of the Civil War was a, gr a great improvement in their liberty, a drastic improvement in freedom from their perspective. From the perspective of other people who lived through that era, who were not slaves at the start of the war, it may perhaps have been a drastic reduction in freedom in many ways. So, for example, the Civil War, both the North and South instituted income tax, which had never been instituted anywhere in the United States prior to that time. There were significant increases in taxes of all types, including excise taxes. And, of course, both the North and South conscripted men into the military, something that had never been done on a national level in American history prior to that time. There was sort of a version of conscription in some earlier wars regarding mobilizing state militias to assist with wars. It was a little different, and it was certainly not as large scale as flat-out national military draft. 
So at the same time, you have this uh, period of time in which slaves are going to be set freed. You have a period of time where prior people – People who prior to the onset of the war had not been slaves are seeing a diminution of their freedom in some pretty significant ways. Now, it's not a coincidence that Jeffrey Hummel, in his great book of the Civil War, that I still consider the single best overview of the war and all the issues pertaining to it, he entitled this book Emancipating Slaves, Enslaving Free Men, referring to just this phenomenon. That yes, there was a great, a great outcome of the war in the form of the ending of slavery. But you should also acknowledge that millions of other people's freedoms were diminished pretty significantly during the war. Now, some of some of those things went back to, quote unquote, normal for a while after the war. Some of them didn't, though. And in addition, it, it established a bunch of precedents that the next time the United States went into war on a really large scale, which was the First World War, um, the old ratchet effect, as outlined by the brilliant Robert Higgs in Crisis in Leviathan, kicked in. Another example that I'll mention of freedom improving in one area and being reduced in another is during the 1930s and the administration of Franklin Roosevelt in particular. Now, many of you might be thinking, what the hell could possibly have happened under the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt that constituted an increase in freedom? And I understand your skepticism, but there's one thing that's often overlooked that's given short shrift in many American history treatments of the 20th century in terms of just what a big deal it was at the time and all of the lessons we could potentially draw from it today if we were actually paying attention to it. And what I'm referring to, it's something that I have for the last, I don't know, three or four years or so, actually spent quite a great deal of time covering in my U.S. History 2 classes because I think it often doesn't get the attention it deserves. And that, of course, is alcohol prohibition. For right around 13 years in the United States, possessing, producing, or consuming alcohol was a pretty serious crime. Now, what does this have to do with Franklin Roosevelt? Well, one of the earliest things he did in office was to work to end alcohol prohibition. He actually got something passed called the Beer Bill. While they were waiting for the amendment to end alcohol prohibition, they were already taking steps to roll it back in small ways, even while they were waiting for the amendment to go through. And the so-called Beer Bill, as it was known at the time, was one of those early things passed by FDR's administration in the first few months, you know, while they were passing the FDIC and ending the gold standard and all those other things. One of the things they did that, to be fair, was a significant increase in human freedom relative to before was the Beer Bill, which basically legalized beer. It, it said that the Volstead Act, technically, technically because of the Prohibition Amendment, they decided that alcohol couldn't be fully relegalized until the uh, next amendment went through the process, you know, to end prohibition. But they passed the beer bill, which modified the Volstead Act and basically said that beer would now be legal, even though harder stuff would remain illegal until the amendment cleared, which it did relatively quickly. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, but it meant that prior to FDR's administration, you could potentially go to jail for drinking a beer. And pretty quickly after he became president, that was changed. You could go buy a beer, drink it, and not worry about getting in huge trouble for it. And again, within a short amount of time, prohibition itself was entirely um, changed by constitutional amendment. That is a pretty big victory for freedom. Now, is it, is it perfect? Did they still continue to have taxes and regulations on alcohol? Yes, absolutely. But 
that's still an improvement in liberty from facing severe criminal sanctions for even having a beer. But of course, at the same time, FDR's administration instituted lots of New Deal policies that drastically curtailed people's economic freedoms. The Agricultural Adjustment Act and the National Recovery Administration probably being two of the most significant that instituted what at that time were unprecedented controls on the American economy. Well, not fully unprecedented. Some things during World War I had actually been quite similar, but it was definitely unprecedented to have that degree of economic intervention during peacetime. So anyway, the Civil War era and the 1930s under FDR are just two snapshots I can think of where liberty was increasing in one area, but then was shrinking in other areas. So that's one way in which American history is complicated from the standpoint of liberty. It's true that average Americans have less freedom in many areas than they did, you know, 150 years ago. But to be fair, there are other areas in which Americans do have more freedom than back then. So it's very complex. Now, overall, you can just look at the size of the government in the 20th century and understand Leviathan is net growing all the time. But that doesn't mean that there haven't been some ways in which liberty has been increased since, you know, times gone by. There, there was a lot more, for example, censorship of, you know, so-called obscenity and things like this in times gone past. It's just, it's very complicated. Now... When it comes to things that I admire overall about American history, well, I admire a lot of the rhetoric of American history, especially the sort of Jeffersonian tradition of ideas and rhetoric. I'm a fan of the basic sentiments of documents like the Declaration of Independence, and I'm a fan of the intention behind the Bill of Rights. I see the, the Constitution overall as a whole as a clear attempt by big government federalists to create a larger uh, central government that would always be increasing. So I don't revere the Constitution overall the same way so many people do. But I acknowledge the Bill of Rights as a valiant, well-meaning attempt by the anti-federalists, the Jeffersonian types, to try to put some restraints on what the Leviathan would be able to get away with. That said, it's a, it's a well-intentioned thing. I appreciate the sentiments behind the Bill of Rights. If I could snap my fingers or push a button and make the Bill of Rights be enforced and make the government abide by it, I, that's a button, another button I would, I would press immediately with no reservations. But empirically, we know that the Bill of Rights failed. It failed. It has failed consistently, more often than not, to restrain government. For every one case, you can see the government being restrained by the Bill of Rights. You can see dozens, if not hundreds of cases in which quite the opposite occurs. So I think Lysander Spooner had it right when he said famously back in the 19th century that the Constitution has basically failed because either it has authorized the ever-growing, ever-intrusive government that we have had, or it has been powerless to prevent it. And either way, it's not not been a successful experiment. And while the violations of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution as a whole have been more egregious and more frequent in the last hundred years or so than prior, the fact of the matter is it was repeatedly violated in early days. Probably the most clear-cut case of the Bill of Rights being grossly violated in a way that a third grader could identify as, as a violation is under President John Adams with the Alien and Sedition Acts, particularly the Sedition Act, which criminalized speech. 
and was enforced and people did go to jail. So there we have a member of the revered founding generation being unable and unwilling to abide by the letter of the, the Bill of Rights, in this case, the First Amendment. And you have the Congress at the time backing him up on it and the Supreme Court at the time backing him up on it. And so in 1798 already, the generation of men who wrote and ratified the Constitution were following it. And of course, you could also, if you wanted to point back to many of the things pulled off by Alexander Hamilton during the Washington administration, clearly seem to, if you actually stick to the letter of the Constitution, violate it as well. But the Adams administration, I think it's just such a blatant violation of the First Amendment that there's no even coherent argument you could make that it's that it's anything but that. So that's a long roundabout way of me saying that I appreciate a lot of the intentions and sentiments and basic principles of what I'll call, for lack of a better term, broadly the Jeffersonian tradition within American political discourse. But I think that they didn't go far enough in terms of working out their ideas and making them more consistent and taking them to their logical conclusions. And in addition, when they were in office, the Jeffersonians, like so many modern-day conservatives who say they're going to roll back the government, when they were actually in office, most of the Jeffersonians, including Jefferson himself, did a pretty inconsistent and often lousy job of abiding by their principles. And for every one place you can see them rolling back government power, you can find many other places where they're actually violating their own principles and supporting increases in government power and supporting actions that were, by their own ideology, by their own yardstick, violations of the Constitution. So I've been actually asked a similar question to Leo's question by some of my students over the years, and the way I've sometimes put it with them is if there's ever a tombstone made for the United States, the inscription on it should read, Wasted Potential, or Unfulfilled Potential would perhaps be a better way to put it. That you had a place that, in its origins, had many good ideas about human freedom and natural rights and natural law. That took the best of those things that could be found in the English radical tradition from people like the Levelers and John Locke, and did try to take some of those ideas a bit further, but ultimately fell short. And again, the two two ways I look at it are like this. One, in the abstract philosophical and ideological dimension, very few Americans, and certainly no Americans that had any significant power, were able to hammer out a lot of the inconsistencies in the ideology itself to make it more philosophically consistent. And secondly, in practice, even people who espouse some pretty good ideas from a liberty standpoint often failed to really implement them or even make as hard of a try as they might have to implement them while in office. So I think the history of the American government is one in which you have a mixture of good ideas and bad ideas. We should admire the good ideas. We should be willing and eager to improve them to make them more consistent, to work out the kinks, and also to attempt in whatever way we can with whatever resources we have to apply them more consistently in our own lives. There were people who did a good job, I think, working out a lot of these 
uh, inconsistencies, at least in theory, and one of them is Lysander Spooner, for example. And there, there have been other radical individualists throughout American history who realized that Jefferson had some decent premises, but he didn't take his ideas far enough, and he certainly didn't implement them well enough when he was in power. And then while acknowledging the good ideas in American political history and wishing to make them more consistent and implement them better, that we should not turn a blind eye. Those of us whose number one value in the political arena is liberty, we should not turn a blind eye to the fact that from the get-go, there have been lots of ideas within American mainstream political discourse that are very antithetical to liberty. And we shouldn't let the fact that we admire the liberty-sounding ideas blind us to the fact that there have been anti-liberty ideas in the mix the whole time. And that while occasionally liberty will win a little victory and push back Leviathan temporarily, it's only ever temporary, and it always leads to just larger growth of Leviathan down the road. It's sort of like people who lose 20 pounds and then gain 40 pounds. That's kind of been the history. And again, this is sort of what Robert Higgs talks about in Crisis in Leviathan when he talks about the ratchet effect. And I would apply that basic thinking to American history as a whole, looking at the big picture. I would say, from today's perspective, yes, we should acknowledge and admire positive things we see in American history, and they definitely are there. But we do ourselves or nobody else favors when we sort of adopt the Whig history, W-H-I-G. Whig history, if you don't know, is a term that goes back to goes back to England, I, I think, as far back as the late 17th century, and, and it refers to the Whig Party in England. It's not referring to the American Whig Party of the 19th century. And Whig history refers to a type of history that is very self-congratulatory and basically describes history as this just constant improvement, constant upward progress towards more liberty and more enlightenment and so on. And the English had their version of it where they looked at English history and it was just this constant trend line upward from Magna Carta or even further back all the way up through the Glorious Revolution and into the 18th century. And it's in order to have this narrative, you've got to basically ignore or otherwise expunge from the narrative or cover up or something anything that runs counter to that narrative. And the United States has had its version of Whig history in this sense since the beginning. So in a narrative of, of American history that's Whig history, there is either complete ignoring or else downplaying and excuse-making for things like the treatment of the Indians or the treatment of slaves and other minorities. And there's emphasis put on opportunity and possibilities for individual self-improvement and all that sort of thing. And then there's there's complete ignoring in that sort of a narrative of things like, you know, aside just from the treatment of Indians and other minorities, there there is ignoring of things such as the ways in which not all of the American wealthy, but many of the American wealthy have, throughout the country's history, used the state to acquire wealth, to acquire greater wealth, to defend the wealth they have, and essentially to insulate themselves from having to actually compete in the marketplace. And you can even see in the writings of Ayn Rand some of this going on, this ignoring of historical facts, where she says that big business is a persecuted minority and blah, 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 completely either ignorant of or deliberately ignoring the fact that 
throughout much of American history, even in the so-called free market Gilded Age period of the late 19th century, many, many big businessmen were all over the place with government privilege and government help for them and government putting hurdles in the way of their competitors' real or potential. And again, a book I often refer to, check out something like The Triumph of Conservatism by Gabriel Kolko in order to see that Big business was very much in favor of government intervention in the economy, has been almost since the get-go. I mean, you go back to Alexander Hamilton helping out the banksters in the 1790s. So we shouldn't let what we want American history to be to blind us to what it actually has been. Sort of like the old saying about how you can't begin to improve until you acknowledge your problems, right? A person who's an addict can't begin to fix themselves until they acknowledge the depth of the problem they have. So I would say that Americans can never fully begin to try to improve things unless and until they fully acknowledge the magnitude of the inconsistencies and the problems. So when you look at the history of the American government and the political class, to me it mostly is negative. Other than the occasional brave lone individual or small group of people who stand up within or against Leviathan and, and make a valiant effort to hold it back, I think of somebody like, just to pull one example, and, and these are people that often I wouldn't agree on on anything, but I, I give them credit for when they take a stand on something that I do agree with and they take a stand bravely. Somebody like, for example, Martin Van Buren during his presidency, the economy was bad due to the depression caused in part by what Jackson did after he shut down the Bank of the United States. And there was potential for two wars during Van Buren's presidency, and he basically avoided both of them, even though a war might have helped his popularity. Van Buren was very unpopular due to the depression. Texas, which had recently won its independence from Mexico, was throwing itself at the United States trying to join, and Van Buren turned down Texas in part because he worried it would lead to greater North and South tensions over the spread of slavery, which it later did when Texas came in, but also because he believed and was later proven correct on this as well that Texas, if it was brought into the United States, it would almost inevitably lead to a war with Mexico, or which, by the way, almost everyone at the time correctly thought the United States would win. But Van Buren apparently thought that going to war to take another country's land was not a moral thing to do. And so even though that probably would have helped his poll numbers dramatically, it would have helped him win a second term, which he ended up not doing. Van Buren, a guy I don't agree with on everything for sure, took a stand and said no to Texas, even though that would have been a huge political boon to him. And also there was a potential for a war with Britain at the time over Canada. In particular, I believe it was the border between Maine and Canada in, in the Northeast. And again, Van Buren could have potentially been a jingo and started a war and it probably would have boosted his popularity. But again, Van Buren thought that would not be a, a morally good thing to do. And so instead, he engaged in negotiations with the British and the border was settled between Maine and Canada peacefully. So that's just one example I can think of, of, of somebody who doesn't get much respect, but who I look at and say that, you know, that's a person who in some ways committed political Harry Carey in order to take a stand for what he believed in, and in order to take a stand for things that I largely agree with too, like avoiding immoral and unnecessary wars. So there are little little cases of that throughout American history of somebody taking a stand within the political system, but I have to say the, the larger trend of American political history I would see as mostly, mostly negative from the standpoint of liberty. And it didn't start 
with the 20th century progressives. It certainly didn't start with 2009 and Barack Obama coming into office as so many kind of standard, typical mainstream conservatives want you to think. It started, if anything, in Philadelphia in 1787, if not even earlier than that. Now, when you look at broader American history, setting aside the purely political realm and look at economic history, look at the history of technology and social history, again, it's it's very complex. There's a lot of good and bad swirling around, but there's certainly things to admire when you look at Great American entrepreneurs, and here I mean entrepreneurs in the true sense of people who are not using the government as their, as their crutch and their tool to aggrandize themselves, but people who actually become successful in a genuine free market fashion by going out there and developing goods and services that people are happy to voluntarily pay for. And there are some great stories about people like that, and I probably will eventually cover some of those. The entrepreneurial aspect of American history is definitely a thing that I admire, but I'm always careful to differentiate. I'm always careful to not say that all successful businessmen are good or that all big businesses are good or anything like that the way someone like Ayn Rand did. I'm always careful to point out, look, we have to distinguish, as Burton Folsom put it in Myth of the Robber Barons, we have to distinguish between entrepreneurs who rely in whole or in large part on the state for their success in the form of subsidies or privileges or whatever, state-guaranteed state, state guaranteed monopolies, who knows what. Distinguish between them and the genuine free market entrepreneurs who do it on their own with no government violence to help them out, who come up with goods and services that people are happy to pay for. So there's definitely some heroes to be found there in the, in the market entrepreneurs. There's some admirable elements to the history of sort of the pioneer types, the mountain men and others who were the first ones to go into wild, rugged landscapes and carve out a living there. I admire a lot of that, although I temper that with acknowledging how often these people were trespassing into Indian territories in some areas and that sort of thing. So it's, it's just, it's very complicated. And I guess that's about all I can really say is that there are positives and there are negatives, and I don't think we should be blind to either. Now, it might seem like because of my show and what I've covered in regards to American history so far that I dwell much more on the negative, and I, I guess I would I would admit to being guilty of that at least so far a lot of the time. I try to temper it with some, you know, DHP heroes and things like this that, that are more positive, but part of the reason I do that is to counteract what I see as the mainstream narrative of American Whig history. Now, the left has their version of it, the right has their version of it, and they're different, but both the mainstream left and the mainstream right of today have a version of the American Whig history narrative that they preach. And I think both are severely flawed. So understand that when I do more negative things on American history than positive, it is largely because I perceive that there is more of a need to counteract the patting yourself on the back version of American history because that's more prevalent amongst both the left and the right. And again, their versions of that narrative are different, but they definitely each have one. And to wrap up, I'll just throw in one more thing into the mix, and I'll say that above all else, I'm an individualist and try to resist all collective methods of thinking as much as possible. Now, you know, sometimes you kind of have to do a little bit of aggregation in order to analyze things. 
and I was raised with a lot of collectivism as my paradigm, as pretty much everybody in America is, unless you're raised in some like libertarian gulch gulch community in the middle of nowhere. So I'm, I'm prone to it as much as anybody, but I always try and check myself when I start to fall into those things. So I, for example, I don't think people should take pride in positive things done by others who are not themselves, nor should they feel guilt or blame for negative things done by others who are not themselves. So, for example, when when I look at the positive things done by Americans in the past, I might admire those things. I might even maybe want to try to emulate some of those things if they're applicable to my life. But I wouldn't use the word pride. And the reason is that I had nothing to do with those things. And to me, that kind of seems like the people who watch the game at home, maybe while wearing a T-shirt with the team on it, and actually feel a sense of personal accomplishment when the team does well. Now, you could be a fan of a team. You could be happy when your team does well. You could admire them if they do a good job. Um, but I would say look out if you're if you're feeling a sense of personal pride over an accomplishment which you had nothing to do you know, with accomplishing. And the same thing with blame. You're a fan of your team and the team really messes up and loses the game badly. Well, you know, you can, you can say, oh darn, I wish they, I wish they would have won or what have you. But man, if you really feel a sense of like personal, personal guilt, then, um, you know, you, you maybe need to rethink, rethink your premises. So I really try to avoid in my own thinking and try to discourage in others anything where you're assigning guilt or blame to entire groups of people based on the good or bad things done by some people within that group. So when people of a certain ethnic group look back to earlier people of the same ethnic group and say, ah, I, I, I take pride in the accomplishments of so-and-so who was one of my ancestors, that that bothers me, and, and vice versa when, when they say feel guilt. So I think we as Americans today should, in a personal sense, not feel either pride or blame on ourselves for the respective, you know, good and bad things done by prior Americans. I don't think we should feel that in a personal sense. I think instead we should look at it and say, what are the good things that were done by prior Americans? And let's acknowledge those and, and let's, you know, if we want to use those as inspiration or as models to look at and hopefully say, hey, how can we do even better? And, but then to also not nix out of the narrative the negative things, to not turn a blind eye to those things and to acknowledge, yes, here's some things that prior Americans did badly or did that was very wrong. And let's figure out how we can minimize those things in the future, try to avoid those things in the future. So that's my complicated answer, Leo, to a very good question. Now, as to the question about whether America's best days are behind or ahead of it, my weaselly lawyer answer to that one is it depends. I think the system, by which I mean the political and economic system, as it currently exists, is headed for hard times. It's unsustainable. It can't keep going on indefinitely like this. Now, how long it'll take the political and economic system to really start to collapse and, and drastically change, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't answer that. But I think the evidence is pretty compelling that as things exist currently, the political and economic structures that we have are not indefinitely sustainable. They're just not. So I think for many Americans, there are hard times ahead, probably in the relatively near future. Now as to, will that affect everybody equally? Of course not. And I think those who are more clever and strategic in how they plan and run their lives right now 
some of those people will be able to mitigate the things that are going to drag down the overall population and system when they do happen. So for example, an individual who has lots of useful and marketable skills and who has little or no debt and who perhaps does some amount of self-sufficiency type activity, prepping whatever food production of their own, these sorts of things, they don't guarantee you'll get through unscathed, but they increase your odds. Meanwhile, a person who has little or no marketable skills, has no amount of self-sufficiency, and who is buried in debt right now, when the system is still hobbling along, that person is likely to face severe problems if the system crashes. So in the short to medium term, I believe there's going to be some significant changes that will affect many people negatively. But the good news is you can decrease your odds of being one of the people that's really steamrolled by it if you're aware that it's coming and you take rational steps within you know the realm of what your resources are to position yourself better to hunker through the storm. Now, when when the problems hit, when the system starts to have, you know, even more blatant problems than it has had, do things end up at the far end of whatever crisis or problems occur, do things end up better or worse from the standpoint of freedom and prosperity and so on? And my answer to that is it depends on what happens in the ideas. What happens in the realm of ideas? If better ideas win out, then there's the possibility that the end of the current system could be replaced by a much better system. There could be a renaissance of freedom of some type, but that's not a sure thing. If most, if most people have bad ideas, if most people are successfully led to believe that all the problems we're suffering are the result of too much freedom, economic and otherwise, then there's the possibility that people could be, uh, even, even a vast majority of people could be eagerly clamoring for somebody with an iron fist to take control and enforce order in the economy, in society, and so on. So in other words, when the, when the current partially free, partially not free system falls apart, as I think it will at some point, I believe it could be replaced by something better, but it could also be replaced by something worse. And a lot of it depends on what goes on in the realm of ideas, because I do believe that ideas in the long run matter a hell of a lot. And so the more people are awake to the fact that the problems that we're having and will continue to have and that will probably get worse, the more people who are aware that those problems are the result of too little freedom and are aware of the fact that the notion that they're the result of too, too much freedom is a narrative peddled by those who want to seize more power over all of us, the more people have what I would consider good ideas and the fewer people that are seduced by bad ideas – the greater we increase the odds that coming out on the far end of the crisis that I think will eventually happen, that will come out on the far end of it in a better place rather than a worse place. But it's a razor's edge. Could go either way. And that's why I think that the contest of ideas is so important. And that's why I'm doing my own little humble bit here to try and you know help out the side that I perceive as the good guys. And I would urge everyone to not only learn the ideas, learn the truth, learn which ideas you think are correct and consistent and good, learn which ideas are the opposite, have a clear understanding of why, 
but also to seek to maximize your own skill at articulating these ideas and presenting them in a persuasive fashion. And I'm not at all advocating any sort of trickery or misleading to get someone to agree with you or anything like that. Quite the opposite. But just, again, that there are ways of communicating that are more likely to cause someone who's either apathetic, on the fence, or maybe even disagrees with you but has good goodwill, good intentions. There are ways of communicating that are more likely to cause that person to really think about your ideas and perhaps eventually adopt them. And there are ways of articulating ideas that generally lead to just backfiring and people doubling down on, on confirmation bias. And this is something that's come up on several of the different questions in this show, sort of a recurring theme, this idea that it is absolutely vital to have good ideas, to have them worked out and understood by you, and to work out any contradictions and so on. And it's also great to try and put those ideas into practice to the degree that is possible in your own personal life. But that a skill that's often overlooked is the skill of being able to express your ideas in a way that other people will actually listen to them and think about them and not just reject them out of hand. And yes, I acknowledge not everybody is reachable, but there are a lot of people who are potentially reasonable if they are communicated to in a productive fashion. So whether I'm really good at this or not, I don't know. I don't know. That's kind of, it's in the eye of the listener, I guess. But it is one of the things I'm trying to do here is to communicate ideas that I think are good in a way that will cause people to at least give them a fair hearing. So what those of us who believe in liberty, what we do does matter because what we do could be the difference between whether or not if we come out of the far end of the crisis that I think will eventually happen, whether we come out in a new dark age or in a new renaissance, it matters. So that's my answer to whether our best days are ahead of us or behind of us. Those of us who are Americans is could go either way. What we do matters, whether it goes good or bad. I appreciate your question. I hope my answer makes some sense and wasn't too rambling. And as always, with every question that I answer, I hope that I've given everyone something to think about, whether you end up agreeing with my take on it or not. So thanks again to Caitlin, Brett, Jim, and Leo, all of them for their emails. Remember, if you have any comments that are relevant to this this specific episode, uh, you can, if you like, leave them in the comment section for this episode at the website. Website, again, is profcj.org, P-R-O-F-C-J.org. You can also email me with questions or comments about this episode or about anything having to do with the Dangerous History Podcast and any of the things that we cover in it. My email address is profcj at profcj.org. Remember, you can connect with the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe to the show many ways, including via iTunes and Stitcher. Ways to support the show, there are many, including simply spreading the word about it any way you can. Tell someone you think might like it about it. Talk about it on a discussion board somewhere or something like that. Share my links, whatever. Another way you can help out is consider leaving a review or a rating of the show in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher where you can do that. And of course, very important, I can always use financial help with the Dangerous History Podcast. I mentioned over the summer that one of my summer courses got canceled for low enrollment, and it happened again. Just the other day, I was scheduled to teach five classes this fall semester, and one of them got clipped. 
One of them just didn't have enough students for the college to run the course. And it's not any fault of my own. I always get good reviews from students and all of that. It's actually because of changes to the gen ed requirements as mandated by the state. So thanks again, government, for one other favor you've done for me. They've changed drastically starting this year how gen ed requirements are done at my college and at other similar colleges in my state. Previously, there had been four history courses that all counted as knocking out gen ed requirement credits. U.S. History 1, U.S. History 2, World Civ 1, and World Civ 2 all counted as gen ed credit. And while the U.S. courses tended to be the most popular, you still got a decent number of people in World Civ as well. We didn't run as many sections of World Civ because of less demand, but typically, you know, you run two of each American history, one of world, and, and typically they would all at least get enough students to, to make, to run. But changes in gen ed, and this has affected all of the specific disciplines as far as I know, they've significantly reduced how many courses are on that magical list of knocking out gen ed requirement credits. And so what happened within history is it went from four history courses fulfilling this criteria to just one. And so now only American History 2 knocks out a gen ed requirement credit. And U.S. History 1, World Civ 1 and 2 don't. They're, they only count as elective gen ed credits. Now, I knew, we've known for a while these changes were coming because they were announced by the state a year or two ago and you know told they were going to be implemented this year. And I knew, we all knew, that it was going to affect enrollment numbers in any course that was not part of this now significantly smaller list of courses that would count as gen ed credits. But I have been shocked at the severity of the effect on enrollment in all of my other courses other than U.S. History 2. So during the summer, I had I had a U.S. History 1 course get canceled for low numbers. And then now going into the fall semester, my World Civ 1 course got canned as well. I've been teaching World Civ at this college every fall for eight years. This is literally the first time it has ever been canceled for low enrollment. So that was a surprise to me. I, I knew the numbers would be lower in, in every course but U.S. History 2, but man, it's shocking just how bad it is. So anyway, that's a long way, roundabout way of saying, A, poor me, B, thanks again, government, and C, brother, can you spare a dime? I'm teaching four courses this semester, which given my other duties is the bare minimum for a full-time load. I had planned to do five, which would have given me one overload um, and uh, in according little pay bump because of teaching an extra class while well, that extra class is gone. I'm going to have a little bit more time because of teaching fewer classes this fall than I've ever taught in a fall semester before. And I'm going to, as much as possible, direct time and energy towards the Dangerous History podcast because I want to keep building this thing. But I need your help. I need your help. So aside from helping me to spread the word and grow the audience, financial help would really be appreciated with the amount of work and resources I put into this podcast. So go to profcj.org slash donate, and you'll see many ways you can help the show financially. You can donate either a single lump sum via PayPal or donate, sign up for a recurring monthly donation from PayPal. You can also donate to the Bitcoin address I have on profcj.org slash donate. You can also help me out financially, and many of you do, and it's, it's a big help by purchasing things from Amazon, first going through the affiliate links found anywhere on my website, and I get a little kickback from that from Amazon with no extra cost to you. 
And then, of course, the, the big one that I'm really trying to uh, push and grow is Patreon. Please consider becoming a patron of the Dangerous History Podcast. If you enjoy this show, go to patreon.com slash profcj. I'll have links to it in the show notes and other places on the website as well. And again, there you can sign up for a per-episode donation. Sign up for any amount, and I'll thank you on the air the next episode that I record. And also, sign up for at least $1 donation per episode, and you will qualify to have access to special bonus episodes I'm putting out via Patreon approximately one a month. If I haven't already, I will have the first... Dangerous History Podcast bonus episode up soon, if I have not already, by the time this episode goes out. And that one is entitled Dangerous History and Personal Liberation. I've got some other things in the works for future bonus episodes on Patreon. One of the ones I'm going to be doing, releasing there probably in the next month or two, is going to be Samurai and Ninjas. I was originally going to do Samurai and Ninjas as a regular Dangerous History podcast episode, but I thought that would be a cool one to do as a bonus one, as a special thank you to everyone who signed up to help me out via Patreon. So if you like this show and want to help out, please consider signing up for a recurring donation per episode via Patreon, and you'll have access to these special episodes. As always, huge thank you to anyone who's donated or helped out in any way recently, um, including spreading the word or buying stuff from my Amazon links. Any of these things greatly appreciated by me. It helps keep this thing going. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.